Coming up on Windows Weekly, Leo Laporte is on vacation, and I, Micah Sargent, am happy to be back for Windows Weekly. First, we celebrate the birthday of Microsoft, which just turned 48, and all I've got are these tiny little clappers to celebrate it, so that's for you, Microsoft. Then we move on to talk about the beta channel build for Windows 11, including a really cool uh, feature for File Explorer called Access Keys. Microsoft 365 makes its uh, appearance first with Bing that uh, might start costing some folks money in different ways, and a security vulnerability that existed with the launch of the new Bing. We also talk about the Surface Thunderbolt 4 dock and how it uses USB-C instead of that Surface connector. And of course, we head into Xbox Corner before we round things out with the back of the book and a very fascinating look at putting whiskey into barrels. Stay tuned for this week's episode of Windows Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Windows Weekly, episode 823, recorded Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. The door is made of a rake. This episode of Windows Weekly is brought to you by Cisco Meraki. With employees working in different locations, providing a unified work experience seems as easy as herding cats. How do you rein in so many moving parts? Well, the Meraki cloud-managed network. Learn how your organization can make hybrid work work. Visit meraki.cisco.com slash twit. And by Melissa. More than 10,000 clients worldwide rely on Melissa for full-spectrum data quality and ID verification software. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash twit. And by Lenovo, orchestrated by the experts at CDW to help transform your organization with Lenovo ThinkPads equipped with the Intel Evo platform for effortless connectivity and collaboration from anywhere. Learn more at cdw.com slash Lenovo client. It's time for Windows Weekly, the weekly look at all things Microsoft, including Windows, Office, Xbox, Enterprise, and everything in between. Uh, the voice may sound a little different to you today. That's because I, Micah Sargent, am back for Windows Weekly while Leo Laporte is on vacation. Of course, as one can expect, joining us from Lower Mukunji or somewhere. In no, just regular Mukunji. Regular Mukunji. It's <laughs> paultheratothreat.com. Hi, Paul. Hey, how you been? I have been well. I've uh, been looking Good. forward to uh, hopping back on the show with you. And uh, mm -hmm. looks like you're the second of, of two moves is well underway. So I'm happy to see things are going <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And we are also joined, I believe this is... Uh, my first time hosting since Richard Campbell started hosting the show. Absolutely. Hello, Richard. Hi. Now I want you to take on that name, um, my town. That's always a good one to try on. Oh, what is your town? I don't know where you're calling us from right now. I'm calling from Coquitlam, British Co Columbia. Coquitlam? This rolls Coquitlam. right up the tongue. Just like it sounds. Just exactly, just like it sounds. Uh, if you yeah. could just cut him saying it and sort of paste it where I said <laughs> he's calling us from, and then put it there, that'd be great. That's it. You you seem to be quite the uh, the the globe trotter. Um, we I'm, have. A, I 
a meeting every Tuesday where we kind of talk about what's happening for the week, a little behind the scenes here. And mm-hmm. uh, we always are going, where is Richard going to be calling from this week? Yeah, <laughs> what's it going to be? Yeah, you know, it's uh, the, the first quarter was particularly hairy, even by my standards. It looks like I flew 80,000 miles in three months. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that's a you know trip to New Zealand, trip to Australia, a couple of runs to the UK, a couple of runs to Europe couple of stops in the u.s so uh it's tapered off a little now uh april is going to be other than a couple of drives down to redmond for some stuff is fine may is uh one run to europe and then build which is seattle and then june i think i'm going to kansas city and that's about it so kansas uh, city kansas or kansas city missouri well, turns out they're the same town. Just depends on what side of the river you're on. Now listen here. I'm, a, I'm from Missouri and Kansas yeah. City. No, Kansas City, Missouri is the one. But if you're now, I'm coming in. Fly. I'm coming in on the Missouri side. Yeah. Is that the one that has the good barbecue, or is it the other? Oh one? God, yeah. don't get me started. And which one has the Kansas City Chiefs in it? Which one's yeah, the, the Royals? Yeah. Oh boy. Yep. Oh, anyway, um, well, I uh, yeah, that that sounds exciting for sure. But um, Something else that's exciting is how we're kicking off the show. And I uh, asked, I said, so I just, I was reading the show notes and it looks mm-hmm. like we're kicking things off with a celebration. Do we have any sort of party favors? And they gave me some uh, glitter and there these tiny nice. little clappers. <laughs> and they, I Yay! don't know. Like, look at how small these Hooray! are. Yay! Oh, those are great. Happy oh, those like, uh, they're like Donald Trump's hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. Microsoft uh, is getting near 50 this 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 yeah. week <laughs> that's enough of that yeah that is plenty of that so <laughs> um i mean i didn't know uh kind of when microsoft uh age so it's kind of interesting to hear that uh it happens in april does microsoft do anything to celebrate these sort of yearly anniversaries internally or externally that we know of not that I know of. No, not, I, I mean, was, I think they hit the. I was there on Friday, and there was uh, things were pretty pretty calm. That literally was the thirty first. Right. Uh, right. You know, if, if you're going to have a party at campus, first there has to be people at campus, and there's not a lot. Of <laughs> sure. At what happens if you have a party and no one came? There you go. Did it happen? <laughs> so yeah, I don't think it was a thing at all. Yep. They'll probably do something for their fiftieth, surely. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, you would hope. I mean, the funny part, of course, is thinking about it, is how many people working at Microsoft are still there. Like of that original right. dozen, I think they're all gone. Yep. You know, yep. they've they've they're also all extremely wealthy. So <laughs> why would they stay? Right. That's yeah. That's a that's a fair point. If you you've you've made your money, you don't need to be there to celebrate yeah. uh, this this far along. Um, all right. Well. If, if we don't have anything else to say about the birthday, then we can move right along to Windows 11. I, I, I did look up the uh, the Microsoft office in Albuquerque. It's The building is still there. It was a rental office on California Street. Um, it's It looks like a 50-plus-year-old building. Like, it's not yeah. pretty. It was a strip mall kind of a situation. It was near a laundromat and some prostitutes. It was nice. It was a good part of town. Um, <laughs> but I actually like, used to live in Albuquerque, random aside. Um, myself uh but uh yeah that's not a good part of town not even today and paul allen had a plaque put up on one corner of the building that says like this is the original historical headquarters of microsoft um which was stolen like 10 years ago <laughs> oh. and then i he and then he had it replaced it's been replaced sure. but now that he's gone i wonder if he left in his will to keep replacing that plaque 
Right. So yeah, the foundation's still operating. Presumably they have plaque preservation in mind. The only thing I know about Albuquerque is that's where Bugs Bunny always ended up when he... That's right. In- that's in my notes. I, yeah. Microsoft took a wrong left turn in Albuquerque. <laughs> nice. That's that's how I first heard about it as a child. Yeah. Didn't know if it was real or not. When I moved to New Mexico, people I worked with asked if I needed a visa to work there. <laughs> I to them that's part of the United States. Oh, that's They insisted this was not true, so I had to show it to them on a map. Now, wasn't this wasn't this a story in the news just recently of a fellow who tried to get married at, in New York? And when he said he was from New Mexico, they said, well, then, you know, where's your passport? That's incredible. He just didn't know that it was a state. Well, ignorance persists. That's yeah. good. Good to know. <laughs> that's and that's bad. the theme. Uh, no, I, I can't. <laughs> so Windows 11, uh, of course, yeah. uh, has a new beta channel channel build. Do you want to tell us about what's going on there? Yeah. <laughs> Paul, it's yeah. so nice to be back here on the show with you. I just, I, this, I, I was, I was ready and excited and, uh, you have. And I just sucked no, the wind you, right out of you that. Drove it, you drove it home. Because you gave me what I was expecting, sort of just a, yeah, this is what's happening. <laughs> well, just to, to bring you up to speed, <laughs> um, Microsoft now has uh, multiple channels that they test early Windows 11 builds in. Uh, there's a Canary channel, which is brand new, which we suspect is going to be the Windows 12 stuff, um, dev, beta, and release preview. So there was a new beta channel build within the past week. Um, this one, you know, as is off so off the case, right? It's not like there's a bunch of major stuff in here, but there is some interesting stuff in here, right? Um, and, you know, for example, they're testing that uh, Bing button in the taskbar. So if you are, are have access to the Bing preview, which, by the way, everyone basically does now. Um, that Whether dynamic, you want to or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That dynamic uh, search highlights button will be replaced with a giant B because we get to do the superhero thing. Um, but I'm actually, uh, and Richard might be interested in this too. I, I, I'm kind of more interested in this access key feature in file explorer. Um, and this is just because this is vaguely a programming topic to me. You know, if you create apps for windows, you know, if you go back to the old fashioned way to create apps, right. You can do things like create keyboard shortcuts for certain actions, of course, that you can tie to the same event handler as like clicking on a menu or whatever. But Windows has long supported this thing called access keys, which I think a lot of people kind of misunderstand. And the notion here is that you can use something like Alt F to bring up the file menu. And then each action in the, or each command in that menu has an access key associated with it, right? Um, You'll see a hint if there's a keyboard shortcut, uh, which is a completely separate thing. You can uh, evoke that without going through the menu. But the access keys give you a way to basically navigate the menu um, with the keyboard. I like this. This is one of the things that I actually like about. <laughs> wow, this is going to sound rude. One of the things I actually like no. about Windows. Yeah, is yeah. No, no. I understand. Just use that keyboard shortcut. Uh, just type right. a letter that's underlined. Is is it like that? Uh, that mode. Yeah, sort. It is sort of. Yeah, and the. One of my frustrations when I go to the Mac is that not everything has keyboard access, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this notion of like, um, Z order is not the right term, but, uh, th- this way of you can tap in Windows, you can tab through controls in a, in a menu or a, a toolbar or whatever it is. And you can kind of tab, 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 enter, and it will make that thing happen mm-hmm. on the Mac. There's limited support for that. And it varies by app and it's, it's not a stringent requirement. And so one of the frustrations is you can't tab, tab, tab into a certain thing in a Mac UI and then start typing or whatever it might be. 
And I always run into that. And as someone, I, I think writers and coders are people who like to keep their hands on the keyboard. Yes. Uh, it's a, it's a frustration. And so one of the issues in windows though, is that we have uh, like multiple archeological layers of technologies, <laughs> right? So applications are written with different frameworks and all the old ones support this natively. It's a very common thing. And then the new ones probably do support it. Something like the windows app SDK or the universal windows platform. Um, it's less common to see these things implemented in apps written, but to those frameworks, not because it's not there. It's just, People are writing these kinds of apps don't think about this stuff anymore. It's kind of a, it's well, almost old Developers, it was built into the toolkit. You you had to yeah. fight to have it not work. Right, right. right? By default, you to, if you had a menu, all the alt keys worked. They, they, that was just that. Yeah, and that's one of the things we've kind of lost a little bit as, you know, uh, we've moved past that kind of classic desktop style of um, application development. So mm -hmm. the file Explorer app in Windows 11 today is kind of a hybrid app, actually. Uh, parts of it are the old-fashioned, um, you know, uh, C probably or C++-based app, but parts of it are WinUI, which is the new modern thing that makes it look pretty. And when you do a, um, like a context menu, right-click on something, like if you right-click on the taskbar, right-click on the desktop, or in this case, right-click somewhere in File Explorer, that UI that comes up is WinUI and it's it's new. It's like modern and it's really nice looking and it doesn't support <laughs> any of the stuff that we're used to. So they're, they're sort of retroactively adding it back. And uh, that's what we're seeing. It's a long way of saying that this thing, which I would call a regression in Windows 11, is going to be fixed sometime this year because now they're testing it in the beta channel and they are supporting what they call access keys are these Getting access keys closer. set by the user or by microsoft and can no, they be microsoft. changed do we know well okay so in this case i would say no <laughs> it is possible as an application developer if you wanted to to support that kind of customization but, yeah. but um, don't that would be bad yeah <laughs> I, I just mean, don't like yeah. that cut is t instead of x that's my only problem i'm seeing in this screenshot yeah and well, so this is the, all right. So this is the separation of the difference between a keyboard shortcut and an access key, right? Uh -huh. um, the, the control plus X for cut will always work, right? And that's okay. always the more efficient way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, don't bring up the menu, just select the item control X that will do cut. That will, that's the same. That's never changed. This is literally the, an access key is for the visual thing that you're seeing that you're looking at a menu and you have choices. Okay. Um, the bigger problem with this uh, context menu, by the way, you can see right at the top, is the, I'll call them, the, in this case, the three or four most common actions are not written out. They're just icons. Mm -hmm. And so cut, copy, rename is the third one. And then the last one is delete. Um, are very common file operations, like types of things you might do in uh, File Explorer, right? Um, but do we know, I mean, does a normal person, I mean, the scissors one is pretty good, but that copy icon, does anyone know yeah. what that means? And the rename yeah. that I actually, I could have guessed all the rest of them, but I did yep. not know that was never would have. Yeah. And that's, that's a weird thing in windows 11 and what they were trying to do, you know, in windows 10, this diet, this menu was very tall. So they got rid of some things and then others like this, they turned into icons on a single row. So they're saving space. They have more padding. The, the letters are all bigger. It's a little prettier looking, whatever, but I, uh, to me, this is, this is like Egyptian hieroglyphics. What, what are we yeah. looking at here? <laughs> yeah. Right? And Well, and it's all part of your special series, Windows 11, where the heck did my cheese go? Right? Yes. Like all the yes. stuff you knew oh. about 
it's just been moved a little. And it's hard I'm so glad you just said that because it's even worse than what you're suggesting. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you could do this right now, if you're listening or watching, if you have windows 11 in front of you, right, click the desktop. Well, actually that's not a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You got to right click a thing. So yeah, what you have to do is have a file on the desktop, right? So you can have like a little shortcut or something else, right. put a new folder there. Right. So if this thing is up toward the top of the screen and you right click it, those buttons that I just described, cut, copy, whatever, are at the top. If you move that thing to the bottom of the no, screen, Paul, don't they're say on it. the bottom. They're no. on the bottom. <laughs> yep. And listen, if you are looking for consistency, let me tell you, there is no hope here for you. <laughs> there is, yeah, this is abandon, not happening. Abandon all hope. Yep. So this is just, yeah, another, and by the way, I'm sure there's a rationale for this. I'm sure there's a, you know, maybe it's closer to where you're clicking or something. They want to, you want, but you're right. ruining, you know, there's a muscle memory exactly. thing occurring here, right? Because to me, this thing should always be on the top or always be in the bottom. You can pick one. I don't care which one, but um, yeah. Welcome to Windows 11. have always had shell extensions, right? You were always able mm-hmm. to add software that, and then it would ask, can I add the shell extension so that it would show up in that context menu for a file and so forth. And that was fine. It was only when Microsoft started adding things to that context menu that <laughs> got way out of control. Because you, you didn't have an option to put it in or not right. put it in. It's like, oh, you've got two OneDrives? Here's two sets of OneDrive icons onto every property menu, whether you <laughs> Listen, uh, we, <laughs> there are all kinds of examples of this. Um, I was just talking to someone about um, the what's now called the Microsoft 365 app, which is used to be the Office app, which is used to be the Office 365 app. And it, it's it's a neat thing in its own way. It, it's a front end to all of the stuff you're working on in Microsoft 365. It's get your documents, you get templates, you can launch apps, you know, blah, blah, blah. What app launches when you click on an icon is a complete spin of a roulette wheel. There's no way to know what's going to happen next. It could be the web version, could be on the desktop. My argument is if you have the desktop version of Word, you will always want that version to launch. No. Yeah. <laughs> but I have, in the same instance of using this app, Clicked on Word, launched Word on, my, on the desktop. Clicked on Excel, launched Excel in the web. I have no idea why. <laughs> it's just, you know. So, yes, will they get this thing right someday? Yeah, someday, two years from now, we'll be talking about an insider bill of office or whatever it is, just like we're talking about this insider bill of Windows today. And they'll fi- you'll fix it. You know, they'll fix it someday. But um, by that time, we'll have other things to complain about. So it's just the way it is. You know, it's just, you never know what you're going to get. Man. It's a box of chocolates. <laughs> and there's 11. I always get the one with the cherry in the middle. Oh, well. Anything else from the uh, insider build you want to talk about? Uh, that's the big Maybe stuff. Maybe want to talk I mean, about or need to talk about. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah. No, I mean, the Bing button in the taskbar is the one people are going to notice. Uh, and, oh, my God, are you going to notice that? Um, and then I, I just I, I highlighted the access key thing to me because in my little world, like this to me is uh, this is what I like to see because yeah. I feel like this kind of thing is what was lost when we went to this simpler UI. And, yeah, it's pretty, you know, but for people like me who like to, you know, keep their hands on the keyboard, like I said, like, um I feel like I'm losing stuff. And if I, if I just wanted to pick up a mouse all the time, I guess I would use a Mac, you know, but I, I really like the, the keyboard thing to me is central to the whole windows experience. It always has been. It's windows was designed. The ver- version one was designed to be used only with a keyboard. If that's what you had, um, you didn't have to have a mouse. So I, I don't know. I think it's central to its um, personality. So it's nice to see them putting it back. Yeah. Put that back. Leave it alone. Yeah. What did you do? Well, you know, they, 
Those guys. <laughs> I'd say they mean well. I'm not sure. I think they're just mean. I don't know. <laughs> um, actually, I think, surprisingly, it's already time to take a quick break, and uh, then we'll come back with okay. uh, Microsoft 365. Uh, but I do want to tell all of our listeners out there about uh, the group bringing you this episode of Windows Weekly. It's Cisco Meraki, the experts in cloud-based networking for hybrid work. Whether your employees are working at home, at a cabin in the mountains, or wherever Richard Campbell is calling in for the week, a cloud-managed network provides the same exceptional work experience no matter where they happen to be. You may as well roll out the welcome mat because hybrid work is here to stay. Hybrid work works best in the cloud and has its perks for both employees and leaders. Workers can move faster. They can deliver better results. They can do that with a cloud-managed network, while leaders can automate distributed operations, build more sustainable workspaces, and proactively protect the network. In fact, there was a recent uh, report from IDG Market Pulse Research conducted for Meraki that highlights top-tier opportunities in supporting hybrid work. Why should we support hybrid work? Well, hybrid work is a priority for 78% of C-suite executives. Leaders want to drive collaboration forward while staying on top of boosting productivity and security. And hybrid work, of course, has its challenges. The IDG report raised the red flag about security, noting that 48% of leaders report cybersecurity threats as a primary obstacle to improving those workforce experiences. Always-on security monitoring is part of what makes the cloud-managed network so awesome. And IT can use apps from Meraki's vast ecosystem of partners, these turnkey solutions built to work seamlessly with the Meraki cloud platform for asset tracking, location analytics, and more. And with those tools, they can gather insights on how people use their workspaces. In a smart space, environmental sensors can track activity and occupancy levels to stay on top of cleanliness. They can reserve workspaces based on vacancy and employee profiles. This is also known as hot desking, which allows employees to scout out a spot in a snap. Locations in restricted environments can be booked in advance and include time-based door access, as well as mobile device management, yes, MDM. Integrating device and systems allow IT to manage, update, and troubleshoot company-owned devices even when the device and the employee are in a remote location. Turn any space into a place of productivity and empower your organization with the same exceptional experience no matter where they work with Meraki and the Cisco suite of technology. Learn how your organization can make hybrid work work by visiting meraki.cisco.com slash twit. That's meraki.cisco.com slash twit. And of course, our thanks to Cisco Meraki for sponsoring this week's episode of Windows Weekly. All right, back to the program, and it's time to talk about Microsoft 365. Oh, we got you muted, Paul. One moment. No, I got me muted. I'm sorry. I was trying to say that hot bag, hot desking is so much better than hot bagging. Um, (laughs) More of a, a more common thing around these parts. I don't even know what that is, hot bagging. Hot bagging is when you close a laptop, throw it in your laptop bag, maybe run to the airport or whatever it is, you get on the plane, you open the bag and it's like 190 degrees in there and you're like, oh God. And then you open the thing, the battery's dead. Oh, no. (laughs) See, I use a Mac, so I've never really had that problem. Ooh, now now I'm having trouble hearing you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I tease, I tease. It's fine. Nicely done. (laughs) Nicely done. Okay. (laughs) I will accept that rebuke. 
Um, <laughs> Moving along to Bing. <laughs> Actually, before we get to that, just real quick, uh, Microsoft is also uh, testing uh, a feature called Workspaces in Microsoft Edge. And I guess mm-hmm. it is now in public preview. I guess it was in kind of a, I don't know what it was, an enterprise public preview before. Um, this is not something that most individuals are going to want to care about too, too much, but this is the idea here is that, uh, we don't have enough places to collaborate. So edge is going to become yet another one of those places. And if you think about any other, um, shared collaboration app or whatever, instead of an individual working in tabs and doing things by themselves, you have a group who can do this. So you have a, a group of tags, a tabs rather that are, um, in a separate space in the browser that are part of a group workspace, um, but this is for consumers, right? It's for, you need a personal Microsoft account. It's not a yeah, well, business but, right. solution. No, right. So originally it was released as like an enterprise uh, preview. I guess this version is now for anybody. Yeah. Okay. So I guess it's for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, in theory, Jeff Taper would tell you, you should be doing all of this in teams if you're running inside of M3. Yeah. I guess it does depend on who you talk to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, as an Jeff example, Microsoft 365. Well, in other words, you have a fam. maybe it's a family, right? And you're, bu- yeah. you're planning a trip. Mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you how many, I've done this in the past. I used to do this with OneNote. We'd be going to some uh, European destination with another couple. Uh, here's some links to some stuff, throw, you know, add some stuff to it. No one ever adds anything to it. It's all the stuff I do, you know, like I'm <laughs> right. the only one that contributes to it. So you could, you could do this now in it, right? You're doing some kind of a research for whatever, like a trip, like I said, or whatever. Um, you have a shared workspace. Here's like some awesome things I think we should do. Um, this assumes everyone you're planning this with is using edge, which is a long shot just to begin Op- with. Optimistic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a big, I guess I understand it. I, I this, we're going to get to an edge topic at the end of the show. Um, that's semi related to this in the sense that it, this is a, an activity that maybe is better handled elsewhere. And that I feel like, um, Maybe we're bulking up Edge with too much stuff. Oh. But I, I, Microsoft I, I doesn't the, do that. They don't put too much stuff in a and just keep. It's you haven't been on the show in a while. Um, I don't know if this has changed since then, or <laughs> it's, but but yeah, they you know, they have a way of overloading things. Yeah, I think actually what Richard said, he was joking, but I, I, there's a there's some reality behind it, which is that depending on who you talk to, you know, he said Jeff Tieper, who runs mm-hmm. Microsoft 365, he would tell you. The way you collaborate is, you know, using Teams or whatever. Teams, yeah. Uh, the guy who runs Microsoft Edge has a completely different answer, right? The person who runs Windows 11 might have a different a- answer as well. I mean, so, it, you know, it's one of those when you're a hammer kind of situations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there is a lot of stuff going on Edge, just to super generalize it, that I would say is kind of the stuff you would put in an OS. And I don't quite understand why we're, um, you know, adding our own forms of navigation, and uh, collections and things like that that are maybe better handled outside of the browser, but that's not the way things are done. In oh, that's interesting. So you are almost seeing it as there are these different teams who all want to do this similar kind of thing. And so they're just like, you know yeah. what, we'll add it in the browser. I, right. I, so I use a version of this. Uh, Safari has a shared tabs experience where you can share with other people. And uh, one of my co-hosts for iOS today, uh, she Mm -hmm. and I can sort of plan the show using the different articles we're going to talk about in a shared way. So I I found this beneficial, but I see what you're saying, especially if it was at the sort of... um, the the desktop Um, level, then maybe it's a a little bit easier to integrate. Well, well, there's an interesting sure. power to that. You know, you, it's only going to yeah. work with Safari if everybody's on Safari. 
Yeah. It's only going to work with edge if everybody's on edge. But there's a bigger thing here. You know, what I jumped on when I said this may be screw consumers is that personal Microsoft account. Like how many folks are using edge, but have never logged in because for what? <laughs> sure. Like, why would I bother? Yeah. And now you're going to force me to do all of those things so that we can share tabs. Uh, it is, uh, it's reasonable to assume that a lot of people on a Mac are going to be using Safari. Yeah. It's actually not reasonable to make that assumption of edge on windows. It's still mm-hmm. a very small percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know that this is the right place to do things. You know, when Microsoft, for example, I don't like the product, but Microsoft has a one note product and team or whatever. And, uh, they make a thing in edge that is like one note. I just wonder why don't you just integrate with one note? You already have this thing. Cause that's the office team, not yeah. the edge team. You know, right. you were, you're seeing the schisms, but I think, you know, uh, uh, you've just nailed. Why did they do this? Cause Safari does this. <laughs> that's right. Oh. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess, yeah, if you're looking for sort of parity across the mm-hmm. the different yeah. operating systems, that makes sense. Um, you want to have an answer. Yeah, I do this over here. What do you have? You know, that type yeah. of thing. I thought I remembered Edge adding other collaborative features, or was that something that they were just showing off where you could have multiple people um, – it may have been at at, at uh, like Ignite or something. I can't remember now, but mm-hmm. they had they were showing specifically. It was one of those planning a trip things again, and they were pulling out little yeah, parts. This of is it and, you know so- almost certainly it was the collections feature, right? Got which it. is the the OneNote thing, which by the way has its own collaboration capabilities as well. And that's the tool. Like I, I just coincidentally, not coincidentally, I guess I mentioned you know years and years ago, uh, I tried to use with others and. Um, Stuff like that just doesn't go well when I do it, I guess. But um, I, to me, you take advantage of the best that the company has to offer and you just make those the integration points. You know, if you can get OneNote for free, which you can, it used to be part of Windows 10, you know, maybe make that the point, you know, maybe make that the place where that stuff happens. Maybe it will be loop in the future where, you know, we're working toward uh, changing things a little bit. So I, it's just that every time they add a feature like this to Edge, I think to myself, you put this in the wrong place. <laughs> you know, this is not where this belongs. Especially because it seems like it's it, it, it's either Teams that gets all of these features added to it. We talked uh, before about the fo- foie gras-ification of Teams as it keeps getting <laughs> more, more stuff into it. And now wow. we've got this uh, edge. <laughs> they just keep p- pa- packing stuff into it as well. Mm. And I agree 100% with what you're saying in terms of find the best the best implementation of it and stick to that as opposed to, because if yeah. you were like, okay, we're going to plan this, we're all going to work together on this. Well, no, but I'm doing it in edge. Well, no, I'm doing it in one note. I know. You it's, just have all these bifurcations. Yeah. 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 The answer is loop. The answer is loop. <laughs> yeah. Everybody <laughs> leaves what they're on and they use yep. loop instead. That's, That's right. it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't mean to get off on a far reaching kind of uh, theological discussion about design <laughs> choices, but, you know, there is a, I mean, there are advantages to the Apple ecosystem. I think one of them is that there's a, there's this vision that we're not going to duplicate functionality everywhere and let mm-hmm. every team do their own thing. And at Microsoft, it's, it is absolutely a different culture and a different way of doing things. Yeah. It's, it's, there have been really overt versions of this. There have been times in Microsoft's history where multiple teams were working on, uh, like, uh, you know, I don't know what to call them anymore. They're basically file sync applications, right? Well, yeah. you know, what, what now, what, what OneDrive is now. Um, under Ray Ozzy, we, I think we had four different versions of those kinds of apps going at one time. 
Um, it's like, let, you know, let the best app win. It's like, no, <laughs> the best, no. if there is a best app, just do that. <laughs> Why would you do these other things? Well, and, and that problem was particularly prevalent under Balmer when got, yeah. when, when, uh, Gates wasn't around, like the, the biggest right. problem you've got here is you've got these different fiefdoms set of Microsoft and there was only one person, BG sitting at the top who could declare sure. one way or the other. He's the, he's the guy who said, Hey, you're making three different workflow engines. Each right. of you contribute two team members, build one workflow engine, and you all use it. Right. You know, but only Bill had the clout to do that in, inside of Microsoft. And when he wasn't around, it just didn't happen. And so Microsoft competed with itself routinely. That seems I, uh, that I, <laughs> has that resulted, I guess, in looking back now, did that result in better products in the end because even if there wasn't no. other competition out there <laughs> I, I i had a feeling where this was going but i just had to ask because no, i would like not. to believe that it helped but well like now it. you got to throw in that other layer of 10 years of tech support so right. link uh, for sql makes it out the door first and a bunch of people implement it and then entity framework comes out a year later as the competing product was slightly lagging behind there's then a bake-off internal to Microsoft, but it's already too late. It's both out in the wild. They decide that EF is the winner, but they have to continue have doing to patches of support for Link to SQL for a decade yep. and punish developers who jumped on the new bits. Like, if you ever wondered why they start getting nervous about trying the new bits, like, I'll wait for Service Pack 1. It's because this sort of thing happened. I would say that it's not happening as much today, largely because Bill's back involved again. One of, of uh, Satchin Adela's criteria for becoming CEO is that Bill goes back to product review. He's not a public face of the company in any way, but he does review all the products and he does these consolidations. And I've yeah. talked to folks inside of Microsoft who are a new generation of people who dread going before Bill. Sure, they should. Yeah, so it's apparently it's terrifying. Right, because good. It should be. He he is hard nosed and yeah. on the ball about this. Justify about the your existence or yeah. leave. Yeah, and and the only people who could be in the room are the folks building the stuff, not the marketing folks. Like you, right. you have to be a part of it, and he will tear you to shreds. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I can't say this has resulted in anything good. I think there's a lot more that goes into it too. Not to drag this out for half an hour, but mm. I spoke to the woman who ran OneNote several years back, and she was asking me about my frustrations with the product and. Um, would I, you know, was I looking for something that I was looking for, which is essentially like a really simplified kind of markdown based something, something that was, didn't have all the bells and whistles and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And they were very interested in working on something like that and making that product. And I don't know that that's what turned into loop exactly. I don't mean to suggest that that's how that came about, but I think there were a lot, there was this understanding in Microsoft that we have this stuff that's, it's legacy, it's top heavy, it's rooted in the past. It's not the way people want to work today. But how do we take this stuff we already have that everyone uses and turn it into this other new stuff? And um, I think the interesting thing about Teams is that it showed a way forward where you can still support the old stuff and have this new thing. And over time, the new thing will take place of the old thing. You don't have to just replace it immediately. And I think that's what they're going to do with Loop as well, that Loop will eventually replace um, OneNote first, but also, um, you know, SharePoint such as it is. I know it's based on SharePoint, but... Um, and many of the other apps that we use every day. Like I think over time, these other apps get diminished yeah. and the focus is... Remember, built. Paul, 
in the end, it's all SharePoint. It's all SharePoint. That's right. Teams That's right. is a shell over SharePoint. <laughs> Loop is an interface over SharePoint. Yeah. Yeah. Under the, behind the, the behind the curtain there, it's <laughs> all SharePoint. Yeah, that's right. It's the virus underneath <laughs> that is uh, it, yeah. it, it holds the system together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like and it's, it, a, and it's a, actually a good glue. It's just that its interfaces right. are terrible. So this effort to build multiple interfaces, so however you want to work, it still feeds to SharePoint. Yeah. And this is. <laughs> This is SharePoint, the document management tool, not yeah, SharePoint. Yeah, 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 not portal. SharePoint, the architecture. No, I, 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 SharePoint is like, I, we talked about this uh, probably a month or two ago, this mm-hmm. notion of like, you don't ever steam, steam clean your engine, right? Because it is the combination of oil and dirt that is holding that thing together. Yeah. That if you steam clean it, it's just going to leak everywhere. That's what SharePoint is. It's yeah. this. It's the oil in the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> so. well, they've done their best to clean it up. The cloud version, the M three sixty five version, is vastly superior in many ways. You know, mm-hmm. the the crimes that have come before largely get peeled off to be able to get into the cloud, and it is a good back end. It's just mm-hmm. that people have to go to it and learn it, and so. You know, everything they've done from there with things like Teams and Loop and so forth is about, okay, well, let us come to you, but you're still feeding SharePoint. Yeah. No, I honestly, it's a perfect solution. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a good idea. It's good as it's going to get anyway. Yeah. Yep. Until the next version. <laughs> yes. All right. Okay, sorry. Now Bing? Now Bing. Paying for Bing? Um, to be clear, Microsoft, if you go back to their original announcement about this Bing AI thing or the Bing chatbot, whatever we're calling it, um, you know, Yusuf Mehdi, I, I believe you could find you roll the tape, Bob. You know, he's at some point he said, we are going to monetize this with ads, right? They were upfront about it. Like, how do we make money on this thing? We have this notion that um, these AI uh, transactions, I'll call them, are, or queries or whatever, are about 10 times more expensive than a normal search query. Um, that, you know, that money has to be paid somewhere, you know, um, and it's the web. So the model on the web typically is free and ad supported. And that's what, you know, uh, search engines are. And that's what Bing is and will be. Right. And so Microsoft sometime last week came out and said, Hey, um, by the way, we hit that 100 million daily active user thing Richard's been talking about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, now we intend to monetize that. Right. And they have these ideas about how they're going to do that. And, you know, how, how that makes sense of any kind. But I mean, this is, uh, this is both unsurprising. I think it was telegraphed and it should not, it should not, I, I know people are complaining about it. Of course, they're going to screw this thing up, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, of course they are. <laughs> they, they have to, you know, it's not, it's not a charity. Right. Um, but, but then again, you know, I, I think the one thing we do miss uh, mostly in the Microsoft space. Let me think about that before I say it. I mean, one of the things I like to see is some kind of a choice between free ad supported and paid. Mm. Um, so at least everyone has the opportunity to take advantage of whatever the service is. You know, Spotify does this kind of thing. Um, other services that started off just being paid are starting to experiment with adding ads and maybe lowering the prices, you know, that kind of thing. It would be interesting to me as a Microsoft user to be able to pay them some monthly or annual fee which I already do, right, for Microsoft 365, and get other benefits that could extend to things like this. In other words, you have to pay to use chat GPT. Is that right? Or no, no, yep. chat GPT. Uh, 20 bucks chat a month GPT. for chat GPT Pro. Yeah. So what if I what if I paid an extra 10 or 20 bucks a year to Microsoft 365 and I just got free access to Bing chatbot or whatever? Same as and, like YouTube Red, right? Like yeah, just yeah. get rid of the ads. I'd like to see that kind of yeah. an option, right? So they're not talking about that, but... 
Um, but what they are talking about is ads. It is interesting to think in terms of how much more information it has to do advertising for you because you you mm-hmm. wax loquaciously to the chatbot compared well, to search terms and clicks. What do you? What's the term you always use? The uh, the valley of despair. What do you call it? The uh, oh yeah, the trough of disillusion. Trough of disillusion. Yeah. So so the, it's Gartner's term. Okay, sorry, it's a good one. It, it, the, the, so the, the way this will uh, <laughs> summon itself in the case mm-hmm. of Bing chatbot is. We're already disappointed with the uh, terribleness of ads and how they track you, right? So I look for a pair of sneakers and I see ads for those sneakers for the next two months, even though I've already bought them and they're already worn in. You know, yes. I'm not buying another pair. I have actually now. emailed the custo- the company I bought from and said, mm-hmm. if I see another ad for your thing, I'm yeah, never buying a product. Again. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'll send it back. Like, everyone is away. Ex- yeah, everyone has experienced this kind of thing. Yeah. So everyone is all gaga and excited about AI and everything. Oh my God, this is the future. I'm going to lose my job, but it's going to be awesome. And when Bing AI starts doing that same dumbness, when that, when that's, that's the, what do you call it again? The trough of disillusionment. Yeah, the, see, the, the, the yeah. it is, that's going to be the moment where, where it dawns on users that, okay, so oh, this thing, I, I thought you'll drop immediately into the creepiness. When I yeah. quote you back, something you said yeah. to the bot yeah, exactly. a month ago and said, right. Hey, we have a product right. for that now. Yep. And you're like, okay, screw this thing. Like you're just, you're just stealing from me now. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> so yeah. before you were stealing from everyone else, but now it's me and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, yeah. Re- you remember so the we'll... original Eliza product, the, ori- you know, the first mm-hmm. time we started speaking existentially to software uh, <laughs> and every yeah. so often it would take, like, it was pretty good at pulling a catchphrase and it would just sort of to change the subject, say, tell me more about how you hate your brother. Right. Like, <laughs> and that was, a, cause that it's was the a way, crazy... it's the way a palm reader works like that. You think they're psychic. And they're just really good at reading the room. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So you can imagine Bing AI having kept all of these token trees of all of your conversations, you know, argu- uh, arguably tied to chat. It's like, stop speaking existentially to software. It's not a good idea. Get a right. dog. A dog is a better solution to that problem. <laughs> but probably understands that, just about as much as AI. Now that you know it's for ads, everything you say to it is going to drive ads. I would say less. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So anyway, like I, I don't know. I, I, because of the world, the little part of the world we live in, in tech, uh, people see this story and they get, they're outraged. I mean, they're just outraged, you know? Um, sorry. It's like I said, it's not a charity. I mean, obviously they're going to have to make money on this thing. In fact, it's probably getting to be a little bit of a problem. Yeah. yeah. Very you know? expensive to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder about the Azure utilization because, you know, mm-hmm. they were in a crisis through the, through the pandemic when demand went That's up right. and hardware availability. And didn't. had no way to expand it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yep. So, you know, are we catching it now that you've suddenly put more demand on the cloud? Oh my God. That's another theory, Richard, right there. I have mm-hmm. all these theories about why Microsoft did this right now. I have, it's incredible. I can well, start okay. a, You just mentioned a new one. Now, uh, yes, shut up, Siri. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, my watch is that I'm sorry. You're always sorry. Just shut yeah. up. So, you have a Canadian the, watch? That's yeah, no, it's, it's a, <laughs> an Apple watch. So, um, yeah, no. So they ran into this problem, like you said, during the pandemic. But now no one is using these services anymore. It's like, guys, we got to utilize all this capacity we oh. built out. What do we have that could suck it all up? Yeah. Guy in the back of the room's like, I get this AI thing. It's insane. Yeah. Large language models. Yep. Large language models. <laughs> yep. Well, and I mean, obviously, all of this was driving, you know, the business is now Azure consumption. 
<laughs> so the trick is to make products that depend on Azure. And right. all of the artificial intelligence initiatives across the board that Microsoft doing, they all consume a ton of Azure. And this one especially, like now you've moved to GPT-4, you just bumped up utilization by I double again. Right. Like right. that's ex that's expensive resources. I don't know how this is going to ultimately wash out. Although I want I do think this stuff's going to end up more on the edge. We're going to have neural processing units on machines that's right. we'll try and get more efficient. But at the moment, not at all. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's a lot of this is um uh, you have to be one of the biggest companies in the world to even afford to do this. Well, they <laughs> right you now, know, you know, where's Amazon in this? You talk about the other cloud competitor. Like other than right. saying they're going to spend less building out their voice product, and I refuse to say the name so I don't disrupt people's rooms. Uh, where's their offering? Because they, they're the ones who could be playing in this field. They have the infrastructure. Yeah, they it. haven't even vaporware it, right? No, I, as soon as Microsoft came out, Google tripped over itself. Yes. Like, oh, we've been doing this for three years. What are you yeah. doing? No, I, I yeah, walked Amazon. directly into doorframe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. The door is made of a rake. <laughs> you know, and like, but, but Amazon silence right silence. the last thing they said that was anything even slightly related was like yeah we just blew 10 billion bucks on this stupid yeah, and voice we're thing gonna spend one, less yeah and all right. anyone uses it for is to tell them a joke and start a playlist yeah you know and yeah so you want us to do the next thing and how much more expensive is it mm. yeah silence fast i don't yeah it's really strange or maybe it makes sense i don't know Let's uh, let's take a quick break. We've got lots more mm -hmm. to talk about in Microsoft 365, uh, but I do want to tell you about, you've probably heard of Melissa. We've talked about them here. They're bringing you this episode of Windows Weekly. It's Melissa, the address experts. Address verification is the foundation for success for many businesses. What can accurate addresses do to help your business? Well, about 63% of shopping journeys begin online. Approximately 20% of shipping addresses contain spelling mistakes, incorrect postal codes or house numbers, and formatting errors. Having solutions like an address autocomplete service can ensure new and returning customers always receive their packages on time and in the right place. That's going to help cut down on support requests, on returned packages, all sorts of stuff. An autocomplete service helps lower cart abandonment because it speeds up the buying process for the customer. The average large-sized e-commerce site can gain a 35% increase in conversion rates by improving the checkout design. At the core of quick, accurate delivery is reliable and clean data. Roughly 41% of consumers say fast delivery is the most critical aspect of their online shopping experience. That's why uh, if you're choosing between going online or going in person, I can get it right now if I go in person. But if I could get it pretty quick when I go online, I'm probably going to choose that. 56% of shoppers say they won't purchase from the same store again if they're unsatisfied with the shopping experience. Verified addresses help with marketing campaigns and they shorten sales cycles. Retailers rely on default address verification built into their platforms and it's not always accurate or intuitive. Having inline validation corrects addresses as they are entered. So by the time they get to you, you know that they're accurate. They're what they're supposed to be. An estimated 20 to 40% of customer records in a single marketing campaign are duplicates. Carriers can charge 10 to $15 per parcel for address correction. And this consequence proves that having an address verification solution will lower unnecessary waste and will lower those costs. 
Melissa's address verification tools leverage 38 years of address verification expertise. Flexible to fit into any business model, Melissa's global service can verify addresses for 240 countries and counting to ensure only valid billing and shipping addresses enter your system. Melissa is also SOC 2, HIPAA, and GDPR compliant, so you know your data is always in the best hands. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash twit. That's melissa.com slash twit. And thank you, Melissa, for sponsoring this week's episode of Windows Weekly. All right, back to the show. And we've got more from Microsoft 365. We sure do. So this is one I'm actually legitimately interested in. And I have to say, it also falls into that category of replacing the old with the new. Although in this case, it's still going to be like the old service on the back end. But we talked about uh, Loop, right? And Teams mm -hmm. uh, as these kind of new style Microsoft apps. Microsoft is in the, also in the process, and it's <laughs> taken up a nice long time, to replace the uh, traditional Outlook application on Windows with a new kind of web-based app. Um, which is then Chris is just called Outlook because we can't have too many things called Outlook, <laughs> uh, which shares some weird uh, similarities with that Microsoft 365 app I had just mentioned as well, in that it has links to Office applications in its sidebar, and sometimes they open in the web and sometimes they open on the desktop. It's a little weird. I'm I'm, I'm hoping Microsoft can get that figured out, but um, people who use, I think, web apps or mobile apps or God help you if you use the mail and calendar app in Windows 10 or 11. Uh, we'll probably see this new Outlook app as a huge improvement, a huge improvement. It's really, really nice, modern looking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the people who use traditional Outlook on the desktop, that thing that used to be called Schedule Plus back in 1996 or whatever. Like, <clears throat> those guys, <laughs> older people. 64 threads, them. none of them are for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, see, this is a major regression, right? It's not going to have every single little feature in Outlook. Outlook is one of those things that, like Teams today, grew and grew and grew and yeah. is this big kind of top-heavy thing. But uh, I like it. I I actually really like this app. Now, it doesn't have a bunch of stuff that it will have in the future. It doesn't have offline support yet. It, you know, it's a web app, but it's it, it will get there. They're, they're working on that. Um, but in the <laughs> the glacial development process that this, this app, I, I feel like they pop up every four to six months and say, hey, we have a new feature. And uh, they did that this week, and they are rolling out support for Gmail accounts. Uh, you oh, know, wow. like it's 2006 again or something. Is it just <laughs> me, or are they just trying to punch Google at all levels? Right <laughs> well, I wish I could say it was a company-wide strategy, but yeah, Google yeah. does come up a lot. Um, they will add support for iCloud, uh, the Apple service, uh, Yahoo, IMAP, et cetera. I mean, this is stuff like, you know, uh, talking about things you sort of think should be there in version Whoa, one. but They didn't do IMAP yeah. before they did Google? That's odd. I know. I, I know. I know. It's now, just, they, they're trying to move off most of those old protocols entirely uh, because yeah. they have so many security problems. Right. Oh, you know, we, we there's a whole row we could have about what they're doing to old versions of Exchange right now. Yeah, I heard about which, that blocking this, stuff. If it's I, I didn't quite understand the whole. Oh no, they it, it is a study in writing bad blog posts, like truly an extraordinarily bad blog post that has now had to be. I, I pretty much did a whole run as on it that'll come out in a few weeks. Tony Redman wrote a re, good recap on it. 
the old versions of Exchange are very exploitable. And they're talking about like Exchange 2007, like old versions of Exchange. And right. if you have it running in hybrid mode, so it's attached to your Exchange Online uh, instance, which this happens, right? You're in, you, you stay in that hybrid mode where you have some stuff still on-prem and some stuff up in the cloud. Any email coming from those old servers attached to Exchange Online is considered good email. It has high priority. It won't be filtered for spam, that sort of thing. Well, if that machine gets exploited because it's not being patched anymore and hasn't for years, then it can use that conduit to get into Exchange Online and spray a lot of bad email around. And so Microsoft doesn't want that to happen anymore. So that's what they're actually locking down. Like for an IT person, the question number one, if this does this affect me, are you running in hybrid? No, then forget about it. You are? Okay. Why do you still have an Exchange 2007 server? Like, stop it. That's a bad idea. You have to upgrade to Exchange 2010 and then to 2016, and you'll be back into support. But it only, they, what isn't clear in there is that it only affects Exchange infrastructure running in hybrid against Exchange Online. But, it, you know, read it again. See if you can see that. It's, it's hard. <laughs> read between it's the hard. lines. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and plus they're not saying they're actually going to do it. They're going to start sending. They're talking about maybe sending warnings. They didn't ever any deadlines. Like, I literally think it was a flyer to see, well, how would people respond if we oh, said wow. this? And the, and the answer is viciously. Like, you stepped in the hornet's nest, kids. What? Like, I don't as soon as you make a hint that we may decide whether your email gets delivered or not, folks get angry. It's shocking, really. Hmm. Not that I have strong opinions about any of this. <laughs> Are you along with, I mean, everybody in terms of this specifically? I'm, now I'm wondering, they should sort of make a Bing chat plugin where you can give it a link to a Microsoft blog post and say, can you make this make sense? Yeah, and it just sort of that's actually the service I provide. But oh I yeah, see that's what true. It's therod.com. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> when uh, Steven Stanowski ran Windows, and he would write these eight to twelve thousand word blog posts, I would write a series of articles. I think I call sometimes uh, called Blue's Clues because it was <laughs> codename was Blue, where I would basically take this eight thousand word thing and turn it down into five hundred words and say, "This is what it really says." And I got to tell you, sometimes it didn't say anything. Sometimes it was just. <laughs> I love the it's idea nothing, of you just like, this one didn't really mean anything. Yeah, this, <laughs> it's like I went through this whole thing three times. I'm telling you, it doesn't say a thing. It, it translates to nothing. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and you could have written that blog post with, if you're not running Exchange in hybrid mode, stop reading. Yeah, exactly. There you go. There you go. You know, if you want to run Exchange Server 2007 on its own and send mail to an Exchange online site, yep. it doesn't know. It doesn't care. It's fine. Don't run Exchange 2007. Stop it. But... It's only in a hybrid mode. It's, and it's just that that wasn't the point they made. Yeah, they needed to make well, that I've, point. I, I this is the first time on this show anyone has ever highlighted Microsoft not being able to communicate effectively. So yeah, I've I, never heard that before from anyone so strange. on the show. Usually yeah, it's like weird. they're just so clear about everything. Yeah, it's a, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I expect a, I expect a detraction email, a blog post sometime soon. I we Last week we had this issue come up with the Surface Hub story where I – rewrote it three times because the beginning said something different than the end. And I eventually said, I, I, I literally said, let's step through this and try to figure out what they're saying. And I kind of highlighted everything. And someone got back to me and said, yeah, we didn't write that one correctly. Um, <laughs> your article has two factual mistakes uh, that we caused by not communicating it right. <laughs> correctly. So I was like, okay, there you go. 
Hmm. It happens. Is there more about Bing that you want to... No. Oh, the Bing. Yes, there is. So... Yeah, so two two months ago now, almost, Microsoft was on the verge of releasing this Bing chat bot, you know, nonsense on the world. And a security company, this, <laughs> I had to look this one up, called Wiz. Now, not The Wiz, the movie from 1978, and also not The Wiz, the electronics store chain from the Northeast United States <laughs> that probably doesn't exist anymore, uh, but rather Wiz <laughs> came to them and said, hey, you have a really serious security misconfiguration in Azure that allows us to completely inject anything we want into Bing search results. And they have some really, they have some really good examples of how they did it. Uh, just arbitrary, just add whatever they want to it. It also impacted Office 365 in some way that I don't care about quite as much, but it was literally on the eve of Microsoft getting ready to have hundreds of millions of new people try out the service. And, uh, they fixed it. So uh, they let two months go by and then they revealed what had happened. It's been patched. It's fixed, right? So uh, they believe that uh, no one has ever exploited it. By the way, this thing could have been left open for uh, over seven years. Easily. Part of it. It's also a common misconception of anybody else using AAD. Like this yeah. is something that the advocates check for you when you get a checkup with them. It's nice. funny that they could have checked up their own <laughs> yeah. stuff. It's kind of, it's a it's little embarrassing. Easy to do. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I kind of wish it had been the whiz that was the electronics chain. That would have been fun. But apparently this is another company. I don't so it's fixed. So they and they and Microsoft was very uh, they were they appreciated this company doing the right thing and telling them ahead of time and not just revealing it. They asked for the two month thing. Uh, they fixed it. They wanted to make sure it was obviously OK. And I guess it is. So it's fine now. It, it was never well, it never it actually was a problem, like I said, for several years, but. It never turned into a an exploit, at least. So that's good. Just lucky, but it, you know how yeah. many more are out there, right? It's, well, thank God it was Bing, right? No one noticed. I mean, it was fun. <laughs> Listen, both <laughs> guys who were using it were very concerned, <laughs> and now we, and now they have a hundred million friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and then this is just slightly related because it's uh, Google Drive is sort of like OneDrive. Um, a bunch of sites started reporting. I think it started on Reddit that um, you can get Drive access in multiple ways. You have a free Gmail account. I think you get five gigs or whatever it is, seven gigs of storage. Um, you can pay for it through Workspace or whatever. You can pay for extra storage. You can get terabytes and terabytes of storage if you want. And uh, apparently, as of about a month or two ago, Google secretly enacted a five million file limit on drive. And so people were getting emails or pop-ups that said, Hey, um, you have to delete 2 million files. So you're going to lose access to drive. It's like, wait, what? And, um, it, you know, obviously this only impacted a small number of people, but, uh, I guess if you were hoarding MP3 files or something, I'm not sure how you would hit this limit exactly, but with terabytes of files, obviously, uh, you could hit it eventually. And some people had, so, uh, faced with the complaints, Google took away the, the limit. Why, why would they, the only thing I could think of is that if you have lots of small files, it actually allocates a lot of space to them just because the block size is so big on the. Yeah, it's something, it's something like that. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, people, like, people have done the math. They're like, okay, you have a terabyte, how, uh, you know, just divide that by 5 million. Like how small would those files have to be? Right. And it's a lot, you know, it's 5 million files. It's a lot, but. And I was wondering too, uh, if with the search feed, you know, if you're searching through those yeah. files, how much that weighs on the server whenever it's look trying to look through all five million potential sure. files as well. Oh, 
It is Google. They're supposed to be good at that part. Yeah, uh, you'd think. Yeah, and this is mostly going to impact people who are paying for the service, right? Yeah. Um, you're paying 100 bucks a year or more or whatever it is, and uh, seriously? Yeah. But I, I wonder if, like the voice systems are generally being cut back on, I wonder if the era of free cloud storage is going to start compatible. Yeah. You, yep. it, you know, it's not like it's new anymore. You can pay for this. It's not a ton of money. I would also say, like, I've been gradually shutting down my server closet here at home. The right. exchange server is off, you know, and I'm getting ready to retire the file server. Uh, I've moved everything to, uh, to Office 365. It's all up in OneDrive, but I am right. maintaining a synchronized copy. So you're running in hybrid mode. You, yeah. You're the problem. But I'm synchronizing back <laughs> to my site. So we yep. use the, O3, the uh, OneDrive by default. Mm-hmm. But should something stupid like this happen, like that's always been the point. It's like at right. some point it can go down or something can get broken. You should yep. have your own copy. And so we have a, you know, what's still in the closet is a one use Synology and, and, yeah. and an 815 plus, And it's got terabytes of storage on it and it maintains a copy of OneDrive locally. I think so. Uh, the one thing I can sort of equate this to in the consumer space is if you have a Microsoft 365 family account, you have you have six accounts that can each have a terabyte of storage, right? Most people don't need six accounts. No. Right? Most families probably don't need six. So you start doing things like, I'll let my one of my buddies have one of the accounts, or I'll let like uh, my mother in law, you know, have an account or whatever. But you know, and you know, you, you do those things, and then you're like, well, I have two accounts left with a terabyte of storage. Maybe I'll use one to store all my uh, like ripped movies or my rip CDs or whatever it is. Like I'll just put like, you know, and I'm sure Microsoft's looking at this and thinking, okay, I think we've been a little too generous on this stuff. Mm. Uh, well, maybe that be clear. That they do bad. look at what you're storing. Like mm-hmm. I have run across instances where folks uploaded baby pictures from the bathtub and got their sure. accounts locked out because it got yep. flagged as child porn. Yep. Right. And right. by the way, getting that unlocked it's is a nightmare. A Multi-year, it may be impossible. Is, is there is there a documented case of someone actually getting their account back after not, something like not that? Not that I know of. Yeah, I know not that I, there might not be. We because the moment they refer in, it yeah. to law enforcement, mm-hmm. Microsoft washes their hands until law enforcement tells them otherwise. So you literally now are on the path to a court order before you're going to yeah. get your stuff back. Yeah. Have a great time. And by the way, maintain a local copy. <laughs> right. And don't trade in child porn. That's gross. Yeah, you're just uh, common sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come on. But I also uh, wonder about copyright uh, materials. Like you said, hey, let's take all these rips and load them up in, right. in the cloud. Like, when does that become a problem? That's, I'm surprised it's not a problem right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. But yeah, yeah. You know, they, we, there's a whole fair use conversation there. Sure. But at the same time, it's like. Well, I have to wonder if, you know, Google looked at their drive stuff and said, okay, we've got like 1.7% of these people have over 5 million files. What? what what, a, what kind of files do those guys have? Yeah. You know, and it was probably some, you know, like questionable something, something in many cases. And I'm sure that was part of the impetus for what they did. But yeah. but these are infrastructure questions that the average mortal knows nothing about. And you're not going to yeah. make them feel bad for you by trying to explain it to them. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's funny. All right. Uh, All right. Moving along well, the surface. Yeah, exciting news. Um, we have a, our first Surface hardware announcement of the year, he says speculatively. I think so. Um, certainly the first one in a while. Um, bad news, it's a talk. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> Microsoft is this, I, I believe, is Microsoft's 
not counting the ones that Surface Pro used to kind of latch into. Remember those? But like the standalone dock, I believe this is their third version. So there's Surface Dock, Surface Dock 2. Now we have something called Surface Thunderbolt 4 dock. Boy. And as its name suggests, there's no Surface Connector on this thing, right? A Surface Connect port. Um, it uses USB-C and it's Thunderbolt 4, as the name suggests. So um, two 4K monitors up to 60 hertz, et cetera. Is it just uh, me that always associate Thunderbolt with Apple? I know. Well, they, you know, that's their uh, ability. You know, they were first. I mean, they were the first. I, I do disagree. Way. And I mean, yeah, the alternative, yep. of course, is calling it USB 3.2. And that well, they could call it 4. USB better. 4 is, it works. Could you uh, call it USB 4? Yep. yep. Um, they're all compatible. I mean, they, I'll give you credit. Like the Thunderbolt full, 4 standard is a good standard. Like that's a pretty skookum yeah. connector. Yeah. Um, and it's still USB-C. It's the same plug. Here's the problem though. Uh, here <laughs> so, actually, Richard, you, you might've run into this with, you, I, you have Surface Book 2 or 3? 2? I got a Book 2. Yeah. When so I, I, and I, I remember. No. Okay. So, uh, geez, I don't remember which version it was. There was a version of Surface Book, maybe the one with performance base, or maybe it was Surface Book 3, where if you put it, if you charge it with the dock, the dock didn't deliver enough power. That was a three. Yeah, that was a three. Okay. So this has the same problem. So oh, this no. thing can charge devices with power up to 96 Watts. Uh, the most expensive or highest end version of the surface studio laptop or surface laptop studio, whatever that's called, which the is studio, the, yeah. the successor to the surface book is what needs more than 96 Watts. Yeah. So you have to have two things connected to it <laughs> to charge it and dock at the same right. time. Or you have to shut it off to charge it up. Uh, and I, this, I would uh, like to start my new YouTube series called Only Microsoft, where uh, it's, they're, they're all about 30 seconds long. I say something stupid like that. Then I go, dun, 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 dun. only Microsoft. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, this is great. Actually, yeah. you should do it on TikTok before it's banned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just be able to be like the little dancing character, like the dancing <laughs> Bill Gates, you know, dun, 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 dun. only Microsoft. Microsoft. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and then the rainbow goes USB, across and says, the more you learn. The USB power distribution is capable of doing 200 watts. It's just the oh, yes. standard is wonky. Yep. Right? Like, yep. The, oh, there's Surface, uh, there were uh, Thunderbolt 4 docks that do more than this, for sure. Yeah. Yep. You so could get, if you have that particular Surface device, you should get one of those because... You can, and it probably costs less than $300. That's the other thing. It is very expensive, yeah. It's really expensive. Even in the world of Thunderbolt docks, this is expensive. There's um, no HDMI or um, DisplayPort on it, which no, no. I understand you no. can do that over USB-C, but I would want to use those USB-C ports. Right, for USB-C. Because uh, I'm comparing yeah. it to the dock that I use and have recommended a lot, which is a dock from CalDigit. And the yep. similarly priced CalDigit dock has Probably so less many, than 200, right? Yeah. The, the, the Thunderbolt 3 one is less than 200, I think. Okay, that's uh, that's what I have. A CalDigit Thunderbolt 3, but the Thunderbolt 4, you're saying, is more expensive. It's a, yeah, it's more expensive. I don't know that it's 300, but it's like 249 or something like that. Okay. But in any case, it has uh, the display port as well as than a bunch of USB-C, USB-A, and it can charge things at full speed uh, or rather full uh, power. So, yeah, this yep. is a little bit more disappointing um, than... But it's, you know what, though? Uh, listen, I, to defend Microsoft, it does have a Microsoft logo on it. And, um, Fair. I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> I, I got to give it props I'm, for the little um, raised bumps that actually would be helpful if you have it sitting to find it, it. with those. Yep. Yeah, so you can find where I'm supposed to be plugging something in and tell tell the difference between them. That's a smart idea. I'm also impressed that it has a 10 gigabit network connection, not a one. You know, <laughs> that's like true. that's not that easy. Well, a lot true. of folks are not that's rigged true. for that. And 
the Thunderbolt 4 spec is fast enough to drive two monitors off one USB port mm-hmm. chained if you have the right monitors. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, it, that's impressive. And the idea, like, rather than having a couple of display ports and a couple of USB-C ports, I, listen, I'd rather have four USB-C ports because then I can do Yeah, them on, okay, right? fair enough, because then you could do them for, you could use them for whatever. I can yeah, drive I, I, into it. I can stick a monitor into it. I can plug whatever surface, I want in. Surface is famous for a lot of things. Um, one of them is the the kind of weird uh, choices they made with ports and port selection and number of ports and so forth. And I would say as 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 on that note, this doesn't even rate the top ten of weird weird stuff my Surface did. But <laughs> it's uh, your other series. It's, an, it's another yeah. TikTok series waiting. But I don't know why I keep doing that. I'm sorry. <laughs> so. No, I, anyway, I like the whole idea of I, I closed my Surface. It didn't power down properly. I stuck it in my bag with my McMuffin, and he needed it back up by the time I got to the airport. <laughs> right, right, right. It fried the egg. Yep, only Surface. I'm looking forward to this, obviously. This is a great series. I'm delighted. Yeah. So going back, of course, the thing here is you could buy this and even if you didn't have a Surface, uh, yeah. you'd be able to use That's this. Right. Surface Connector is sort of the... But I don't know. I kind of liked the idea of the Surface Connector providing uh, oh, yeah. that I, connection right. that is perfect for so, doing exactly yeah. what you need it to do. This, yeah, for a lot of Surface guys, this is the tough one. It doesn't have the Surface Connect port. So this was that little fin-like thing that uses magnets to kind of slide into the slot and keep it, you know. So you could kick the, the cable and it would pop out and not hurt the computer. So... You got to think back. Well, why would they have done something like this, right? This was obviously Microsoft's response to MagSafe, the Apple thing, similar technology, except it's more like a plug. But the idea is you yank the cable and you're not pulling the computer off the table. Um, it's smart. Of course, uh, the original implementation, actually, I think the only implementation, maybe there were two changes, maybe there's one change in there somewhere, but I believe it was basically USB 2 to start when it first came out. It was very low power. They must have updated one, but they absolutely did up it. I'm sorry. Um, there's app because it's based on USB. There's no reason they couldn't have done a USB four version of this that could have supported all the stuff we're talking about here. They could have done that, but I think what we're seeing, and it's not just this. This is not the first instance of this, but uh, I think what we're seeing finally is Microsoft kind of moving away from that. And I know that's tough for some people, but um, I, in my mind, I they adopted USB C and then Thunderbolt four way later than they should have, way later than the rest of the industry. Um, and now they're, if anything, they're overcorrecting, you know, now it's like all USB-C, but, um, there's probably a little bit of a fear too, of, uh, proprietary connectors because the EU is really coming down on a lot of that. So, yeah, you want to, you want to stick with the USB-C plug, even if it's different. Right. And that kind of thing would hurt Microsoft a lot more than it would hurt Apple, honestly. Mm -hmm. Well, is that true? (laughs) And as soon as you start thinking of it as a generic uh, hub, then I go look at like, let's go look at an anchor hub. Right. Right. And Anchor's top of the line Thunderbolt Four Hub is three hundred and sixty bucks, and only go. charges up to ninety watts. So interesting. Okay, it's got a few more. It's got more connectors on it, but it's not any cheaper. Does the Anchor one look like a brick? Oh, no, it looks like a weapon you can kill small animals with. Like, okay. All right, good. Yeah, it's an aluminum chassis. Yeah. I think yep. it needs the cooling because it's pushing okay. itself oh, pretty boy. hard. It's got a fan built in. Yeah, yeah. and it, it can get a little stand to stand it up on its edge. You can make loud noises at night when you bump it over. You know, <laughs> the usual. Yep. Okay. I mean, and I'm a huge fan of Anchor products. I have a bunch of them. I don't have yeah, this no, one. Same. Yep. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, that would be my instinct. If it's a generic device, not specific to Microsoft hardware, why would I get that over 
a third party product that are probably playing less of a brand name for. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I know that was a rhetorical question. I would just say that there are Microsoft guys who, you know, they like the surface stuff. They would might just gravitate toward this, but I would have to guess the real reason they make such a thing is there are businesses that maybe buy these thing in bulk. That's what I was thinking. You just get the whole package and then you don't have to worry about it. And you pay that you do the monthly thing too, right? You could, they have those monthly installment plans where you can pay for it over time and you're basically leasing it. And yeah, maybe that that, I'm sure that's the real audience for this. That's my guess. Yeah. Cause there's a lot lot of companies trying to figure out docking solutions that just work. Mm -hmm. So, right. Well, and get, getting it down to just a USB-C cable you plug into your laptop, and that's its power and setting yep. all oh, it's the best. Forth, it's, it's, it's so gorgeous. Yeah. Yep, it's the best. Yeah, There's right. nothing better than a one cable connection. That's yeah. awesome. And then, in, and then all of the everything else you need to you know the idea that every peripheral you ever buy will also have that connection. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, to Micah's point, I, I, people are going to be buying uh, dongles for sure. You know, if they have to connect it to a particular monitor. Although I, I guess in this day and age, USB C is very common on displays as well. You could go straight through to USB C. Yeah, and uh, we just had there was a the television or the the monitor was HDMI out of the back. And mm-hmm. so you just get, uh, speaking of Anchor, now instead of yep. having to use a dongle, they just make the cable that it kind of has right. the dongle well, technology yeah, built in. Each one, yeah, exactly. Which is nice. So, mm-hmm. All right. Uh, anything else to say about that before we move to Xbox Corner? <laughs> no. It's, um, apologies to Xbox fans. This one's a little light. Uh, there wasn't much happening this week. No news on the Activision Blizzard victory party we're going to have eventually. Um <laughs> But it's happening. I um, did poke a couple <laughs> of friends of mine about that whole that are yeah, working good. the space, and mm-hmm. they're all about. We're really excited the prospect of Bobby Kotick going away once and for all. I think taking, that's the it's yes. the biggest thing. And that's he's gonna, the he's taking a giant pile of money with him, but right. it's going to go away. Yep, yep. Yeah, he's a bad guy, mm-hmm. uh, and no one's going to miss him. <laughs> so. I mean, I, I mean, I literally knew. I talked to one friend of mine who's been in the business long enough to remember when it was four of them in a garage, and he said oh, they were four in cell well, college bros. Like when you say, I know where the culture in, came from. You're talking about Activision, like an Activision. Activision, so yes. like Pitfall Activision, the original <laughs> like guys. that company, exactly. Yeah, Larry Kaplan. I can almost pull up some of these names. Yeah. Uh, but he's like, this has been the culture that was in that group all along. Oh, really? The the, the bro club. Yeah, sure. it was a bro club sense. from the beginning. It's well, never they came been up, yeah. They were right out of it. They were from Atari, right? Most yeah. of them, I think, are all of them. Yeah, or certainly pieces of it. But and Kodak's yeah. part of the original crew, right? Like that. Oh, okay. It's that's what it's about. Yeah. And he signed. He made a deal that was this gigantic pile of golden handcuffs. And he's going to sit there giggling until you ring him out. Mm. God, he's like a toad. <laughs> Well, he'll be gone soon, folks. Like I said, victory party. It's coming. Um, so let's see. It's uh, yeah, it's April. First, this first show of April. So Microsoft, since last week, has announced the first set of games coming to Game Pass, right? This is across Xbox, PC, and then the cloud streaming stuff uh, over the first half of the month. It's actually kind of a short list. And um, the big one on here, I mean, I'll say NHL 23 is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the big one, the big question is Minecraft Legends. So this is another Minecraft game. It seems to be kind of an adventure slash might even action game. And the reason I'm being so vague about this is they've released a big trailer about it. And I have no idea what what (laughs) kind of game this is. So that one is coming on April 18th. That's the latest one in the list. 
it will be available on day one uh, with Game Pass across all of the platforms. So PC, console, and uh, cloud, meaning cloud streaming. So you'll be able to play it no matter how you want to do it. Um, I would love to tell you more about it. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing. I'm going to see it soon, so I'll let you know when I can. But um, I don't. I don't even know exactly what kind of game it is. Yeah, it almost so. reminds me of all of those other um, strategy games yeah, that people like, get super into, and it's like I've got a, a sorcerer and this. And yeah, that and yeah, all. like an RPG kind of thing. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I don't. I don't. I, I honestly just don't know. But yeah, it's just a question of are they are they abusing the brand or are they loyal to the brand? That is a good know? question. So yeah. I, I just I wrote a little article about Visual Studio Code today, and I said, you know, just like any popular Microsoft brand, uh, Visual Studio is a little too popular. We're using that name everywhere. So mm. uh, that's what happens at Microsoft, right? Yeah, God help you if you're successful. You're going to see that name everywhere. So yeah, there have been a couple of um, offshoots of Minecraft, obviously. Um, it was kind of a fun kind of an AR one. Remember they demoed right before the pandemic mm-hmm. that I thought was going to be really cool. And they kind of killed it early. And I thought, man, you should have kept that one around. I think yeah. that one would have been fun. AR and VR are having a big old fat winter this year. So it yeah, might last yeah. for a little while while we explore large language models. To- <laughs> yeah. Well, Let's we- come in and said, Hey, look at Unless me you're instead. named Apple. <laughs> Eventually <laughs> we will plummet down the trough of disillusionment and then the AR will be cool again. Like yeah. we'll see. I think Minecraft and AR makes tons of sense. Me too. It might it might be the only thing that makes it. It was the uh, only compelling AR demo I've ever seen. Yeah. Or VR demo. The the bricky hole in the floor and the guys like on the edge. And I thought, oh man, this is awesome. It'd be so cool. I just get close to my uh, coffee table and I can see the little. Mm -hmm. That's it. Just makes sense. The first uh, Hololens demo we got way, but way, way back, like in January 2015. What one of the demos was Minecraft, and it was Minecraft in the room. So it was a hole in the wall with like Minecraft bats flying out of it. There was a castle on the table with parts that went through the table and under the table, and you could kind of walk around it and see it all in 3D. Yeah. And it was like, this is exactly. And that was never going to be a game. It was just uh, they were just using the assets from Minecraft to kind of show off what it could be like. And it was like, we gotta make make this. Thing. That is what I yeah, want. No, that's the yeah. Whatever you're doing over here, that's okay. That's fine too. But, oh. but this, you, why, this is what you. Why did we never get Pokemon Go for the Hololens? I mean, right. other than it was a thirty-five hundred dollar headset, it was going to cost you a thousand bucks to run. <laughs> that, 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 details that might have been, that might have been the, details. Details. <laughs> you know how obsessed Pokemon Go players are. Yeah. If it gave yeah. you an advantage to capturing more Pokemon, there's a certain class right. of people that would do that. Interesting. Well, maybe this uh, future Minecraft on whatever the Apple thing is uh, coming soon, you know. Whenever that gets released. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, it very much feels like all goggles are are being put on hold going into a winter for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Winter's end, but not today. Uh, in in ocean news. <laughs> in ocean news, yeah. Um, one of the things I, because I review so many P, uh, PCs, is I see how PC makers are using more and more recycled materials in their products, right? And it's everything from the box that comes in, with, which these days is almost always fully recyclable, uh, to the materials that go into the, you know, the the deck of the keyboard, the speakers, the speaker enclosure, whatever it is. Like, there's a lot of reclaimed ocean plastics and and whatever. So. Microsoft uh, has not done so much in this era. They actually have a uh, an ocean plastics mouse, which is a little piece of crap you can buy if you want. Um, there's not much. But they did just introduce a new version of the Xbox wireless controller, which is called the Xbox Remix Special Edition controller, which is an Xbox Series X and S controller with that middle share button. It is made partially from, I love this so much, 
reclaimed materials from Xbox One controllers. <laughs> so it's like it's like the previous version of the console was used, uh, you know, which is funny. Also includes parts from automotive headlight covers, plastic water jugs, and audio CDs. Interesting. So, hmm. Now, what is an uh, audio CD? Uh, yeah, exactly. They're <laughs> exactly. So you know, it's old. Um, there is so. It comes with a rechargeable battery pack. So instead of putting two double A's in there, you get the little battery pack and you can charge it over USB-C. Um, I, I see this and I think to myself, okay, this thing's going to be inexpensive. This should be, you know, a typical uh, not on sale Xbox wireless controller is about 65 bucks. I'm thinking this thing should be like 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. It's $85. What? It's so more? Pay it's premium more, for recycled materials. Yeah, and possibly I mean, the batteries in there. I should say the battery might uh, be uh, part of that. Mm. It, 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 I'm assuming. Actually, I shouldn't assume. Let me go look at the actual product listing. It has a yeah. No, this is the color. So it comes in a, like a variety of kind of green see. and green light colors. I actually that's almost my favorite color right there. Whatever you want to call it, army hmm. green or whatever. Yeah. Um, the the front color. But if you kind of flip it around, you can see there's like tan bits. Like every every component of the controller is a different color, which is something you could do through the, you know, the Microsoft service where you can customize your own controller if you want to. Right. Um, but 80, it's like 85 bucks. That's, guys, yeah. Come on. Like, I actually kind of want to get this, but it's like 85 bucks. I mean, at least be the same price, <laughs> you know, like what, but it's 85. Well, and you even said it's more expensive than the other special edition controllers. So even more than just well, the it's regular. I should say it's more expensive than the other regular controllers. So actually, oh. right. So maybe 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 uh, what I'm saying is it's it's recycled. Maybe and, the incentive here should be make it the same price as a normal controller. But well, and they want 25 bucks for the battery pack, which is basically the difference in price yeah. in the unit. So yeah. the fact that it includes the rechargeable pack, like then it is yep. a sixty dollar controller with a twenty five dollar battery pack. So could I get it without the battery pack? Yeah, because I already have a battery. <laughs> like, you know, because I kind of like I like the look of it. I do. I too. Now is that environmentally conscious, there, Paul? Really? That's a good point. Actually, <laughs> that's a good point. Oh, just it is it. not. But I mean, that's where how they got. Well, them. I already have. I have the battery. I have the rechargeable battery. I, that's. Yeah. The, I, I'm not saying. I'm, look, I, I take double A batteries, and when I walk to my car, I just throw them into the woods. I don't understand. <laughs> that's recycling. Uh, yeah, yeah. that'll <laughs> end up somewhere else. They end up somewhere. Right? I could tell you they don't stay here. No. <laughs> I mean, alkali batteries don't have mercury anymore. They're not yeah, yeah. for the environment. They're not it's as totally, toxic as they used honestly, to be. Honestly, it's I I believe it's basically that's that uh, that the plant food uh, that's yeah. in there, basically. So it leaks into the ground. Yeah, and lithium, alkali, you know, all yeah. Just, that's what a super fun site is, right? It's yeah. just a really verdant <laughs> kind of Eden style garden. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not super fun. It's super fun site. It's super uh, fun. It's a yeah. super fun site. I did some work for the Montana <laughs> Power Company in Butte, Montana. We went up to the largest Superfund site in the United States. It is oh an old copper mine where the waters are color green. It says, that's not good. Yeah. And they showed me the skeletons of the uh, of the Canadian geese who landed on <gasps> it and were burned by the acidity level of oh, that. God. They literally died on the shore. And then, whoa. Yeah. No, it's not. And, and apparently it slowly fills up with water from rainwater and, and runoff and stuff. And we get to a certain height, the EPA shows up and pumps it back out again. But otherwise, that's all they do. And then, you know, it's a place for teenagers to go and watch submarine races. Now, I'm not, I don't have a big problem with dead Canadian geese because sure. you're not allowed to kill them up in Canada. So the more you can take out, thanks very much. Because, <laughs> you know, they are, they're brittle, unkind. You know, they're a menace. They're now, menace. Yeah, they're evil grass snakes. They're right? the dicks of the world, bro. Yeah, bird totally. world, I think Absolutely. is what you're trying to say. Yeah. No. And there's the title. No. 
So I live in a part of the country where the geese, uh, where I used to live in near Boston, the geese would go south before the winter mm-hmm. and they would come back and they fly in those big V formations. You can hear about the honking and everything, right? But where I live, we're kind of on the line between the north and the south. Oh, wow. So they actually, I'm I'm 100% po- they just fly in a circle. <laughs> so they don't ever leave. They they move from like cornfield to cornfield. They eat whatever's left. They don't ever actually leave. So we just got a bunch of loud geese flying around. Yeah. They never go. It's like we never get a break from the geese. I was thinking you were going to say you get the laziest geese because you're right on the edge. So all the ones that I will fly all the way, but the the lazy ones just land there. No, you always see like the, the, like the V and then like a second goes by and then you get the one in the back trying to catch them. It's like, you'll get them. You'll get, keep going. It's the guy in the bathroom when the rest left. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That never ends here. It's like all year long. All right. Weird. We are near the end in the back of the book, but I do want to take Mm -hmm. one more quick break before we get there to tell you about Lenovo, orchestrated by the experts at CDW, who are bringing you this episode of Windows Weekly. The helpful people at CDW understand that as the world changes, your organization needs to adapt quickly to be successful. So how can CDW keep your business ahead of the curve? With Lenovo ThinkPads. These powerful devices deliver the business class performance you're looking for, thanks to Windows 10 and the Intel Evo platform. With your remote teams working across the country and around the world, collaboration isn't a problem because Lenovo ThinkPads keep your organization productive and connected from anywhere. Plus, CDW knows your workforce has different work styles and needs flexibility, which is why Lenovo ThinkPads are equipped with responsive tools and built-in features that let your team work seamlessly across their favorite tools. Now, think about that for a second. And let's also not forget about security. These high-performing machines protect at the highest level with built-in hardware to guard against modern threats without slowing your team down. When you need to get more out of your technology, Lenovo makes seamless productivity possible. CDW makes it powerful. Learn more at cdw.com slash Lenovo client. And thank you, CDW and Lenovo for sponsoring this week's episode of Windows Weekly. It is that time. I've flipped to the end, and it's time, as Leo calls it, for the back. <laughs> it's the, the most wonderful time of the show. <laughs> yes. So as I wrote in my notes, you're, <laughs> you've already proven that you make bad decisions, so you might like this one. <laughs> and by that, I mean you're using Microsoft Edge. I'm sorry, but you are. So... Uh, there is a new feature available in the stable version of Edge. It's not enabled by default. You have to go into that Edge flags interface, right? So if you do not use that, it's edge colon slash slash flags. Search for uh, split, and then you'll see a feature called Microsoft Edge split screen, which is actually split window, but whatever. Um, and change that from default to enabled, and then you will have a split window uh, toolbar button appear. And what you can do is split any tab into two God, I hate to call them windows, but two panes side by side. Um, I have all kinds of problems with this. So I was referring to this earlier when I was talking about putting navigation stuff in Edge. I don't get this. Um, the problem with this feature, it, obviously, you could have two things side by side. There are certain Microsoft sites, including Bing, by the way, that actually support this natively, meaning that you can search for stuff on the left and the stuff that you search for will appear on the right. Like you can... There, are, I, I've only found a couple of these things, uh, but there's a few out there that do this. Um, I, I suppose, obviously, the this is like a like a snap feature inside of the browser, so you could have two sites side by side. 
maybe you're watching a a video and taking notes, you know, in in, in both the pants. I don't know. Um, oh, the I... problems <laughs> the problems with this are many. Um, I I'm, there probably are or could be t- you know keyboard shortcuts for navigating between them. I haven't discovered them. They're not available anywhere that I can find. Um, you can select either side with the mouse and do it that way. There are some options and little floating toolbars that will let you do things like, you know, close the split window, et cetera, et cetera. But I presume this is for Matt, for people who maximize windows on wide screens. Like that's what it's for. Someone who can't get to a place where they could actually put two windows beside each other. So let me just maximize this one window because that's my life, but I want to see two things. I love that you cut them that slack. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say to this. To me, this is functionality that needs to be at the OS level and is. And is. And, and has been for I, ages. And there's, there's a real confusion to it, right? So think about um, you have multiple tabs open. So as you switch between tabs, the address bar changes to reflect the tab that's selected, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever the name of the site is. So now you have two panes, I'm going to call them, because that's what they really are. They call them windows, but what, two panes. And as you select a pane, that address goes into the address bar. You select the other pane, that is true. You know, you have to do something like I, I want to, I'm, I'm going to the extensions menu and I'm going to do something with an extension. You want to make sure you have the right one selected. Oh, Lord. There's a whole ugh, like terribleness to it. Yeah, like I, I, you're, the pane is with an I, right? Yeah. yeah. Two panes in the neck. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Do, I don't. I'm not a fan of this, is what I'm trying to say. Just introducing so many problems. Okay, yeah, this but is you, bizarre to me that it's below yep. the address bar instead of yeah. just yeah. being two windows it's, side it by side. It feels right. It feels now. By the way, that said, so you guys, I get, you agree with me? That's fine. Other people see this and like, thank God, I've been waiting for this. I, I, I love that. I will use this, this all the time. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know well, where people, do you think the name came from? <laughs> <laughs> right, people. Yeah, I, I know this is a, a people you, you, view. Thing you know this was I, a requested feature. You yeah, know this was a requested feature. Look, they just did a pain thing with the video. There, there you go, nice. little little wipey poo. That was yeah, good. Nicely was good. done. Pretty pretty sexy. A nice little swipe. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, you're having anyway, fun with it. I, I have to let you know what happened. Um, I will use this as an opportunity to remind you that you should be using Brave or maybe Firefox and uh, seriously get rid of this browser. But whatever. Um. I haven't talked about this in a couple of weeks, but I might as well promote myself. It's been a while. Uh, the Windows Everywhere uh, came out some number of weeks ago um, on LeanPub, but it is also, I don't know, I don't think I mentioned this, but it's also available now on Kindle directly if you want to get it from Amazon. Um, it's cheaper or it can be cheaper if you get it from LeanPub and it will work on your Kindle. Um, but, the, you know, in LeanPub, I can do like a sliding scale kind of thing on the price. On Amazon, I had a selected price, so I cut the difference and I made it nineteen ninety nine, which is like right in the middle. But this is, it's a big book. This is like, um, I don't remember how many pages it is. It's big. It's 900 and something pages. I don't know. It's a big book. Can we talk about your author photo on, on Amazon for just a moment, please? Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. that. <laughs> so that is a really old picture of me. Really um, old. Look at that. And I don't know. I didn't crop it that way, but that's, nope. uh, that's actually was taken in Newport, Rhode Island, and I still had brown hair. <laughs> so, yep. um, so I'm going to say 2005 ish, somewhere mm. around there. I'm sure the bio is well is yeah there you go it's all it, it's everything I should probably um probably update that that's really great though yeah, still right for the super right at the nose level like it looks very intentional I'm sure that's just a misrender of some kind but it looks so yeah, intentional. yeah. hey neighbor it's not, 
I, I've done exactly. You know, some people talk about doing the minimum. I, I figured out a way how to do less than the minimum, <laughs> and uh, that's what I've done there. So, <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> Um, some time ago, I would have talked about a feature that's part of Windows 11, and I assume Windows 10, although I never used it in Windows 10, called Nearby Share. This mm-hmm. is actually a feature I use with the book all the time. So, for example, when I'm writing uh, the Windows 11 field guide, I will have the computer I'm writing on, but I have the laptop that I'm taking screenshots on. So I take the screenshots, and I have to get those screenshots over to the computer. There's all kinds of ways to do that. I could copy them over the network. I could... USB key them, whatever. But there's a feature built into Windows 11 called Nearby Share that you can configure in different ways. I connect it to, so that any of my own computers will show up. And I, 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 the, by the way, we talked about these icons, remember, earlier in the show, the icons at the top, cut, copy, whatever. The other one that you might not have seen that we didn't talk about was Share. And when you bring up the Share uh, interface, one of the options is Nearby Share. And that's how I copy files between my computers. It works great. Nice. Well, Android has a feature called Nearby Share as well. Um, it works with Android. Obviously, it's going. It, I think it works with uh, Chromebooks now, but they're bringing it to Windows. And they're not integrating it into the Nearby Share in Windows, probably because they can't, or maybe because they're Google and Google and Microsoft hate each other. I don't mm. know. But they have... they're doing with Gmail lately? Or yeah, yeah, exactly. Thing? Like, so, I wonder why they're irritable. <laughs> Google offers a standalone Nearby Share beta app now uh, that works... Uh, as it does between an Android and a Chromebook, but it works you now on Windows. So I've tested it. It works very similarly to the feature in Windows 11. It's it's too bad it's a standalone app, but uh, but it works great. So if you have an Android phone and you have a Windows PC and you want to copy files between them, uh, this is it's a great way to do it. And, this, and under the hood, it's under the under the hood, it's Bluetooth. So it's Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, which is actually, by the way, is how Nearby Share works in Windows as well. So Bluetooth is for discoverability, and then Wi-Fi, they transfer over Wi-Fi. So it's faster. Yep. Yeah. This is helpful because, I, so over on the Mac OS, iOS side, we use AirDrop, and I have in the exactly. past tried to figure out how to do this because there are times when I'll have the Windows machine open, and yep. I have even just a link and I'm wanting to not have to type out the link or do a Google search to yeah. share it over. We've we've all we've emailed files to ourselves. Yeah, all exactly. Stupid, all this all stupid stuff. So nearby share, that's quite nice. Nearby share is a good. It works. It works. It works well. I mean, I I I've done it to transfer images basically, but it works. It works well. It works. We'll leave it at that. It works. End of sentence. <laughs> nearby share. It works. Yeah. <laughs> sort of asterisks. Not applicable in Puerto Rico. It works. All right. Uh, What's next? It's Run As Radio Time. My my podcast for uh, Sysabins IT Pro Types. And uh, this week's episode came out today, 874. We're having Mm -hmm. a chat with uh, Microsoft uh, Cloud Advocate, um, Pierre Roman, who's uh, French-Canadian and uh, smart as a heck. Works on some cool stuff. And we talked about a very sensitive thing, actually. Like, when we got into this after a while, it's like, hmm, this is interesting. So Azure Active Directory has this thing called conditional access, and I've done shows on it before. But it's basically a way for you to create some more protection for people trying to hack at your tenant, where you can specify here are the IP ranges or names that I'm willing to allow in. And it's always been focused on IPv4. It's always supported IPv6, but IPv6 was never enforced so we never would actually do validation of ipv6 even though ipv6 is flying around well they're about to turn on ipv6 enforcement 
So what does this mean? Or what could it mean? Well, it means if you are using a device that happens to be using IPv6 to get to your tenant and you don't and you have conditional access turned on and you have not put IPv6 addresses or locators in, it's going to deny you access. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the most likely place for this to happen is with mobile devices, because most cellular networks, because you're moving around and so forth, have switched over to IPv6 almost entirely because it's far more efficient for them. And so one of the one of the points we got to is if you're, you know, my typical listener who's a sysadmin and you're now getting tickets for people having trouble accessing the tenant through their phones this is possibly a cause. Now, at the time that we recorded, they hadn't turned it on yet. The presumption was by the time I published it would, but I got a note today that they pushed it back a few weeks. So I suspect the noise levels start to go up. Mm. Like, you know, yeah. I like the idea of we should be using more IPv6 and we should be doing some enforcement. But locking people out of their tenants makes them sad. So don't, <laughs> this should be an opt-in feature. You know, that should be showing up in your security advisor is that, hey, you can take advantage of IPv6 now, add this to your conditional access and walk you through the process. In fact, everything you need to know is already in your conditional access logs. Like right now, if someone is connecting to you via IPv6, that's going to get logged, but then it's going to use the IPv4 address that it's associated with to actually do the validation. So it wouldn't be that hard for you to plow through logs, pull up your IV6 groups, starting adding the conditional access. But turning this on and waiting for the loud noises, that's not a good idea. So um, hopefully uh, wiser minds prevail and we'll sort of get into the reality that, uh, that we want this enforcement. We just want it to be applied correctly. We had a great conversation about how much IPV, you know, showing that, that growing graph from Google about IPv6 utilization. We had a great conversation about the fact that V6 is just getting out there more and more, and we just don't think about it much, right? That it uh, it's it's all really the ISPs that we care that are dealing with this, and uh, for the most part, it just works for us. But for folks in sysadmin land dealing with these things, we're starting to see more areas where they're going to take IBV6 more seriously, and uh, and so you're going to want to be able to restrict it. Like the alternative to this might be that IPv6 is a route to a hack too, right? Like that, you you know, pressing against it that way. Someday we're going to be able to retire IPv4, no time soon. And so, you know, this crossover is part of it. And that's kind of the direction Pierre and I went in. Interesting. Well, very, very interesting. (laughs) If you're wondering how the plumbing works, this is the conversation we're having. It's like, what does the plumbing look like? I always like that kind of behind the scenes look at whatever systems happen to be in place. So that's uh, absolutely cool to know. And um, if you are wanting to adjust your own plumbing, you might try doing that with some brown liquor. (laughs) Now, um, you're new to all of this. So I've been doing a series for the past few weeks on how Scottish whiskey is made. Oh. And along the way, as I explained sort of the next steps, I mentioned a whiskey that's unique in that particular of that stretch. So we've talked about growing barley, malting it, drying it, grinding it, uh, turning it into a wash, putting it through the mash tons, fermentation. Last week it was distillation, and I talked about the different kinds of stills that Scottish whisk distilleries use. This week's conversation is about maturation and aging, or typically putting into to barrels. 
So we left off at a point where you have now created new make spirit. So you've gone typically through a double distillation. In some cases, it was a triple distillation. And so you're coming in and around. You've got a clear spirits about 70 to 74 uh, percent ABV. And now it needs to be aged. For it to qualify to be Scottish whiskey, it has to spend a minimum of three years in oak casks. And you'll typically see on a bottle of whiskey, you'll see a year on it. Uh, or a, a number of years that it's been that, that it was aged. That number, say it's like we're talking about Macallan 12. That means that the youngest thing in that bottle is 12-year-old whiskey. Oh. Now, you'll never see a three-year-old whiskey, even though nominally it is allowed to be. Uh, they usually age longer than that. Three-year-old whiskey doesn't taste all that good. Uh, it's still pretty clear spirit. So they tend to age longer than that in these different kinds of barrels. Um, and interesting that it's oak barrels. Now, we've been using oak to make barrels literally for centuries um, because oak tends to swell when it gets liquid, and so it seals itself fairly well. Uh, in the case of whiskey, they typically use only a couple of kinds of barrels, and I'm using their, their Latin names. Quiris Alba is what we normally call American white oak. There are variations on it, but it's the most common kind. And in Scottish whiskey, we get those barrels extensively because of bourbon. So in the, in bourbon land, you have to use American white oak that is toasted, actually charred on the inside, and you can only use it once. So there's a lot of American oak barrels made for bourbon, and then they can't be used again for bourbon, but the Scots will happily buy them and use them. American barrels are small. They're about 190 liters. That's 50 U.S. gallons for those who need the measurements of the oppressors. <laughs> Although um, the Scots will definitely remake them into hogsheads. Now, on a hogshead is a um, 55 imperial gallon barrel because having more than one gallon makes the system better. There are 250 liter barrels. And the way they'll do this is they'll take five American bourbon barrels and they'll rebuild them into four hogsheads or hoggies. Oh, boy. So this is the process. This is cooperage. This is the process of remaking uh, remaking the barrel uh, into 250 liter, kind of the smallest kind of barrel you want to use. Um, the, another very popular barrel to make Scottish whiskey is Quarius Robur or the European or Spanish oak barrel, typically found in the form of sherry casks. There's lots of different kinds of sherry. Most of it comes from Spain. Their normal barrel is a 500 liter or 110 imperial gallon uh, barrel. These are much bigger barrels because in sherry making, they don't want a lot of wood flavor in the drink so they use a much bigger barrel so there's less surface area contacting the liquid they slightly toast the barrel now why in the world would whiskey distilleries use sherry casks well because in the old days that's how you shipped sherry so when they would ship sherry up to scotland it would come in barrels and it made no sense to ship the barrels back that's expensive so you might as well use them and they started aging Scottish whiskey in sherry casks. And the first records that I could find on this was from 1814 that they were aging in sherry casks. Now, by 1986, Spain required that all exported sherry be exported in bottles, not in casks anymore, which eliminated that flow of barrels. But by then, the market for sherry cask aged whiskey was so large that the Scottish whiskey makers were very concerned about this. And there actually grew up a business in Spain to make sherry casks to order 
for aging Scottish whiskey. Now, this is an expensive process because you're basically having them make up a 500-liter barrel and then do a first aging of sherry in it, which is typically, they call it a must aging. It's not very good. Most of that, then after they've done the three years to get it to that state, they'll ship the barrel over to Scotland. What they get out of it, they typically then turn into Spanish brandy. Mm. Uh, occasionally, you will find French oak barrels of Querula sessiflora. Um, these are typically for wine and cognac casks that are sometimes used as finishing caskings for Scottish whiskey. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, just a quick rundown on how a barrel works. So these are strips of oak. They tend to be wider in the middle, narrower at the ends, so that they can give a curve to the barrel. They're held together with steel or iron hoops. Traditionally, this is six hoops. Uh, the French do eight hoops because France. Uh, and then... <laughs> They have oak panels on the chin called the head ends that are fitted together with grooves. Uh, at the widest part of the barrel, known as the bilge, is a bunghole. Uh, traditionally, this bunghole is capped with wood, but it's the filling point. It's also the thiefing point. As barrels age and you're checking their progress, you will pop the bung and thief from the barrel and they check the ABV and, and we'll give it a taste and so forth. I have had opportunity to do tours where we have thiefed from a few barrels. It's a ton of fun and you're tasting whiskey in its earlier stages, which is really cool. Uh, most while the barrels are wood because we want the flavors from the wood, the bungs these days are mostly made of silicon because they are easily removable and they don't get uh, they don't allow bacteria to grow on them particularly well. Which brings us to this great question of why the heck do we like wood? Like it's weird. Why do humans like the taste of wood? We've always burned wood to make fire. We cooked food over it and that smoke seemed to benefit. It's also antibacterial. You know, trees solve the battle with bacteria long before mammals even existed on this planet. They're some of the longest lived creatures and they have a structure that's designed to fight bacteria. Um, for the most part, uh, especially in the case of oak, you, you've got three primary components, cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignans, uh, along with a few volatile compounds, acetic fatty acids, various kinds of phenols and tannins. When we toast the wood, we're actually starting to convert some of those long-chain hydrocarbons in the cellulose into sugars. Okay. So uh, that char does a few things. One is that it actually lifts some of the bad notes out of whiskey. Like we often are battling sulfur from the, the, the barley that can make it quite sour. That tends to stick to the charcoal. Um, the... And we are dealing with these these volatile compounds that we get from charring the wood a bit and then introducing solvents to it. What solvents? Well, that's the alcohol. So when you go, when you're going to pour uh, the, this clear make into the barrel, uh, you're going to have a ratio of alcohol and water, right? When I talk about, hey, this new make is 73% ethanol, well, what's the other 27%? Mostly water. And a few other things. Now, 73% is actually too high to put into a barrel because some of the compounds that are in the wood are lipophilic. They like alcohol and they'll bind to it. Some of them are hydrophilic. They like water and they'll bind to that. And that ratio is important. If you, the, the alcohol, the, the lipophilic compounds tend to be spicier and woodier where the hydrophilic compounds tend to be sweeter and smoother. So we find vanillins like to bond to water, where the spicier compounds like guayacol and eugenol, which is that smell of cloves, they tend to bind to alcohol. Also, 
you're typically most of the time in Scottish whiskey dealing with a used barrel. They've been used before. They and they in the case of bourbon only used once. Sherry casks are often used for quite a long time before they will actually sell them. Although now they're sort of purpose made in whiskey making. A first used barrel, what they call a first fill, so it's been used once. It's been typically used by bourbon, and bourbon has a lower ingress alcohol level, typically coming in at about 62.5%. And so with that ratio, it's pulled certain compounds from the wood already. What Scottish Scots makers will do is they'll put a slightly higher alcohol level into the barrel. So they'll well, they may their distillate may come out at seventy two percent. They'll then cut that with distilled water to get it down to sixty three and a half percent. So one percent higher than the bourbon that was in it before to lift different flavors. Ah, uh, got it. And so there's this game you're playing with the mix of water and alcohol as to what flavors you're trying to extract from the wood. And in a new fair barrel, they'll actually go lower than that because often these compounds can get very bitter. So the first time they use a bourbon barrel, now it's already had bourbon in it, but they're going to use it for the first time for, for whiskey. They might go as low as 60%. And then they'll use, and then they'll take a second filled barrel, so one that's been used once before, and that might have 63%. And as they use the barrel over and over again... Typically four or five times, they'll raise the alcohol level each time to pull more flavor from the barrel. Now, you're putting these things, you're putting that liquor into the barrel for eight to 12 years. And you don't really know how long it's going to be. And there's a lot of forces that are acting on it, right? You don't really know what's going to come of that. So often, and we'll talk about this next week uh, when we talk about what we take out of the barrel, even though it's all a given malting, you might put a portion of that given malting in first fill barrels and another portion in second and third fill barrels, and you'll dilute them differently to get the different flavors from them. Most barrels are filled almost entirely depending on the distilleries, uh, part of the forces that are going to act on this, we'll talk a bit about angel share, uh, is the oxidation part. You need some room for air to be inside the barrel, and some distilleries will fill it less to increase the amount of available air that will be exchanged over time. But generally speaking, if you put more in the barrel, you're going to get more result because we're going to lose some over time. Um, if you start your barrel full, it ages slower effectively. Hmm. Barrels are stored in a variety of ways. The traditional storage methodology for whiskey barrels is called a dunnage warehouse. And dunnage actually is a tax term. So back before they taxed by the bottle, when they were taxing by the distillate, you were actually putting your barrel into a bonded warehouse where it would age. So that it would be accounted for tax when it was put into the warehouse. You would pay the tax when you sold it. So it's like now, Roth IRA versus uh, 401k. That kind of thing. And believe me, we're, we're talking about hundreds of years of taxation related to alcohol. Wow. And in, in earlier shows, we've talked about things like spirit stills where they literally they can't touch the spirit. They have to control it by remote control because the tax man controls access to the spirits. Oh, my. So as we get through, you know, again, these are very traditional mechanisms. Dunnage used to be the way that they would do the final taxation on it. And a traditional dunnage warehouse and most distilleries still operate on these. It's a very traditional style are stone walls with a wooden with a wooden structure roof with tile on top of the roof and dirt floors the they have relatively low ceilings the barrels are laying on their side so they're horizontal which increases the open amount of access to wood uh, they're stacked two or three high 
because the dirt they have to have dirt floors they can't use machinery so the barrels are basically loaded by hand up to three high and remember that a uh, a gallon of whiskey weighs about eight pounds so when you're talking about a hundred gallon oh 500 God. liter barrel like get some friends there's gonna be some lifting involved there now <laughs> yep. um more contemporary uh, warehouses, and this, these are pretty common too, are what they call the rack houses. Now, and a rack house in America for bourbon is very different from, which is the way most bourbon is made, very different from a rack house in Scotland. These rack houses in Scotland are concrete floors. The barrels are still stored horizontally, same as a dunnage warehouse, but they're on racks that can go as many as 12 barrels high. So quite tall structures. Um they can obviously have machine handling because they have to get quite that high. And the barrels are organized in a way where air is allowed to flow around them. And that's an important part of the aging process. So they're, they're, they're stacked in position and then aged for an extended period of times. The most contemporary versions of, of storing systems now are palletized warehouse. Um, para, and, and when they use pallets for barrels, they're standing them upright. So rather than on the side, they're, they're upright. They're stacked one layer on a pallet then those pallets are stacked one on top of each other, and they can, again, be quite high. So not as much wood touching in that instance, then, if they're stacked. Not as much, yeah, the, the liquor's not touching the, the wood as much because you're, uh, you're sitting upright. You don't have as much air availability. So there's a slowing of the aging process. Uh, and depending on which distiller you talk to, that is heresy, and everyone should be burned at the stake. <laughs> All barrels should be stored horizontally. There's a lot of passion yeah. in making yeah. whiskey, yeah. And, and and the barrel storage is a huge part of it. Anything other than dunnage would be sacrilege. You know, it depends on who you talk to. But we got to talk about the angel's share, because now we get into the dangerous part of this business. So it's a wooden barrel. It breathes. Over time, as the seasons come and go, as it gets warmer, a certain amount of the alcohol is going to evaporate from the barrel. And depending on where that barrel lies in the various storage systems, it's going to lose more or less. There's this thing called the honey uh, spots, which are sort of the places where it, it, it makes the best whiskey. Not every location is the same. If you're higher in the rack, it's going to be warmer up there in the summertime, so you're going to have higher rates of loss. But you lose up to one, up as much as 3% of alcohol per year. Whoa. And remember that the rule for whiskey is if that barrel falls below 40%, you can't sell it as whiskey. So you went into the barrel at 63 or 64% and you're losing a certain amount each year. Now, if it gets too warm, it can actually start to lose water and the alcohol percentage will increase. Although this has more to do with humidity than anything else. So one of the reasons for the Dunnage warehouses with their stone walls and dirt floors is it maintains a higher humidity. Mm -hmm. And a high humidity environment will tend to evaporate alcohol. Where in a place like Kentucky, where it's quite a bit warmer and quite a bit drier, the bourbon folks battle losing water and their alcohol level getting too high. And if you get too high in bourbon, you're not allowed to call it bourbon either. So often you'll see in some uh, distilleries in America, especially, they'll cool their barrel rooms to try and manage that that heat problem. Watering it down it, is not the same then? If you if you had that sort of higher alcohol content, then just add some water to it before you send it off, is that a no-no? It's pretty much against the rules to do anything to the barrels. Plus, it's not scalable. You think about the racks and racks of barrels. 
So they're pretty much leaving them alone for an extended period of time. Uh, but they will check on them and they'll check their ABV. So that's that whole thiefing process mm-hmm. where okay, the occasionally the brown one will go in, they'll pop a bung, they'll take a thief, which is basically a glass tube. You hold your thumb over the end of it. Uh, or you leave your thumb off, you dip it into the barrel, you put your thumb on, you lift it back out, you get a little strip of the wi- or the raw whiskey, whatever's been happening in that barrel. You put it in a couple of glasses, you take a sniff, you test for ABV, what's the current alcohol level, you can see the rate of decline. I'd also point out that alcohol evaporated in the air is an explosive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you'll generally see in traditional, especially traditional Donage warehouses, like the ends are open. They allow that that gas to dissipate, and the alcohol actually sticks to things and turns them black. Um, oh. And this gets extreme in certain environments. There's a, recently some news stories in the in Bourbon Country in Kentucky where, I mean, forests are getting destroyed by the the mold that grows related to that that alcohol exposure. But you know, you can recognize old Dunnage warehouses because you'll see a lot around the roof line and so forth is blackening from the alcohol contamination as it evaporates. Uh, and so weather matters a lot. It's part of the game to this. Of course, if alcohol is going to leave the barrel, something needs to come in. It's not like there's negative pressure in the barrel. So you're also breathing. You're bringing air into the barrel. And most of that air is going to have come from other barrels because they're all doing that. But there is this, there is a sense of the terror of what comes from the environment. And a great example of this is Talisker on the Isle of Skye in the western, most, westernmost part of Scotland amongst the islands that there's a little hint of salt in the whiskey from the salt in the air that gets drawn in <laughs> through this angel air process over time. Uh, and of course, the, in that out, that evaporation process, the amount of liquid in the barrel is going down year over year. You're trying to stay above that 40% point, but it's one of the reasons that older whiskeys are so expensive. Not every barrel makes it that long. Not every barrel ABV stay high enough. To find a whiskey that's 50 years old, where the youngest thing in the bottle is 50 years old, is to speak to an extraordinary barrel that just lost so little alcohol over such a long time. Uh, it'll be much more concentrated. Uh, barrels do leak. They do get cracks. That cooling and heating of the seasons can be problematic. A very hot summer or a very cold winter can damage them. Uh, sometimes they can be fixed just with a bit of hammering. Pushing those bands of steel down to tighten the wood uh, is enough to stop it from leaking. There's barrel wax to seal it up. I've seen copper plates hammered onto pieces of, of a barrel to seal it. Um, it's interesting just to see the active bacterial processes they do with all of that. So we're talking about aging. Uh, and again, if you talk about traditional single malt whiskeys, you typically see them in the 10 to 12 year range. And that means they've been sat in a barrel for that long. No aging happens in bottles. It all happens in the casks. And so the real question you have to ask is, well, when's the whiskey ready? Well, you know, what does ready even mean? So the barrelmen are sampling different bot casks at different locations on a routine basis. And they're watching the ABV. They don't want it to fall too low. And they're also studying flavor profiles. And we're going to get into next week into the finishing part of that, which gets into the really miraculous part, which is how do you make a whiskey taste like a whiskey year over year over year? Why does Macallan 12 always taste like Macallan 12? There's an art form to that, and it's extraordinary. But it, Aging is not as simple as it used to be. It used to be you put it in a cast for a certain amount of time, then you taste it. If it tasted pretty good, go sell it. But that's not what happens today. You're doing bottling. There's many, many casts involved. It's much more complex than that. And since the 1980s, starting with a, a particular distiller from Balvenia, a guy named David Stewart, they started doing finishing caskings. 
So if you look at a fairly famous whiskey in this category is Balvenie's Doublewood, what David actually figured out that was clever is you can start in sherry cask and run it for 10, 12 years, and then at the end, take it out of that barrel and put it in a different barrel, like a sherry cask for just about a year. You don't want to age a long time or in port casks for a long time. Sherry casks, they do long aging in, but port casks, they typically no more than a year. Um, but you're also seeing finishing casks of all kinds now, red wine, uh, rum, cognac. I've even found one where they did a final year in tequila. Mm. I don't know that it's just anywhere between six to 24 months. They do these finishing casts okay. before they send off. But it's always this question of, you know, when is it ever ready? And um, that brings me to my whiskey for this particular show, which we're going to go to the lowlands to a distillery called Auchentoshin. Uh Great name, Auchentoshan. It's barely in the lowlands. It's all the lowlands is the lower part of of Scotland, uh, attached to England. Uh, it's a smaller area than the Highlands, which is the largest area. Uh, this particular distillery is all the way west, barely in the lowlands. In fact, it gets its water from the Highlands. It's northwest of Glasgow on an area called Clydebank. Uh, Clydebank was an important port during World War II. And in fact, the Auchentoshan distillery was heavily bombed during World War II. And today, one of their large cooling ponds is actually an old crater from the war. Wow. That uh, they reconditioned. The uh, distillery is owned by Suntory, which is a Japanese company that's rolled up a bunch of these different distilleries. And we'll talk about that one of these days. Their mash tons are stainless with copper lids. They use wooden washbacks and they do triple distillation, which is very unusual. So they have their regular wash and spirit distilla- uh, stills. And then there's a third still called an intermediate still, which is weird because it's at the end. But let's not get technical here. <laughs> and so their typical new make comes out at 81% alcohol which is very high compared to most whiskeys now my personal favorite of all the Auchentoshans the one if I see one I will grab it is their three wood and it's about $50 US for a bottle and it's called three wood because they do their first 10 years in bourbon casks and then we'll put the distillate into a year of Oloroso sherry and then a year of Pedro Jimenez sherry and and bottle that but the one i wanted to talk about it's not on the list anymore but you can find it if you look about it which is a very unusual whiskey is their virgin oak about 70 dollars a bottle if you can find one the whiskey exchange has it but it's one of the very few scottish whiskeys that goes into raw wood oh so they buy american oak that has never been used have it made into barrels and they finish their virgin oak in that uh it's got a unique flavor. There's a harshness to young wood uh, that uh, gives it a little more kick for what is relatively uh, a short-aged whiskey. But it's triple distilled, so that high distillation, then they cut it with water before they put it in the barrel. It gets a lot more spice for what is normally, lowlands tend to be very smooth. And this one's got a bit more punch, but it's an exotic whiskey. And again, it's the kind of whiskey I would buy for someone who's really into whiskey. And this is one they'll never try again. They've only done two editions of this. The first edition is unfindable. Uh, the second edition, there's still a few around for about $70. Wow. Okay. That's, that was, this is fun. <laughs> uh, I, I love learning new things. So this was a lot of fun to hear about this process for sure. Yeah. So next week's show, we'll, uh, we'll talk about finishing. So the whole process of getting from all of those casks, when are they ready? How do you combine them? How do you bottle them? And what are the last steps to making a bottle of whiskey before you can sell it? Beautiful. Well, 
I believe that brings us to the end of this episode of Windows Weekly. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, Paul Therott of Therott.com, thank you for everything today. You too. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And Richard Campbell of Run As Radio. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Uh, Thank you as well for you. Oh, you're over here. (laughs) I am. All right. And uh, thanks for diving in on the whiskey story with us. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Um, folks out there, a uh, few things, of course. You can head to uh, twit.tv slash WW if you would like to subscribe to the show. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. We try to be in all those places. So you head there, twit.tv slash WW to uh, subscribe across different platforms. And if you'd like to, you can tune in live to watch us record the show at twit.tv slash live every Wednesday around about 11 a.m. Pacific time. So thank you uh, to those of you who joined the show live today. And uh, I should also mention Club Twit at twit.tv slash club twit. That is where you can go uh, to become a member of the club starting at $7 a month or $84 a year. Uh, When you join the club, you get lots of great things, including every single Twitch show with no ads. It's uh, just the content. You also get access to the Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else before the show, after the show, behind the scenes, club twit events, all sorts of great stuff, and access to the members-only Discord server, a place where you can go to chat with your fellow club twit members and also those of us here at twit. And, you know, I said starting at $7 a month because you can actually elect to pay more. And you may, you're going, what? Well, we did hear from some people that they wanted to pay more because we continue to add value to the club. And uh, they felt like it was a great time to sort of step up the the mm-hmm. contribution they were making. Um, you should check out the great shows that we have as Club Twit exclusives, including the Untitled Linux Show, uh, which is a show all about Linux, as you might imagine. Also, Paul Therott's uh, Hands-On Windows Program, a short format show that covers all sorts of Windows tips and tricks so that you can make sure you're making the most of Windows uh, visual tweaks, performance boosts, and I hear uh, we're going to be doing some registry editing a little on down the line as well, so you can look forward to that, as well as my... (laughs) Ooh, fun stuff! Um, As well as my program, Hands on Mac, which is a show (laughs) like Hands on Windows, all about uh, the Mac, but also iPhone, iPad, etc. So I've got uh, short format tips and tricks for you there to check out and the Home Theater Geeks program, which is uh, a great show featuring Scott Wilkinson that covers all you need to know about your own home theater and uh, maybe even some aspirational content for how you might want to improve upon that experience. So please join the club, twit.tv slash club twit. We'd love to have you there. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Windows Weekly. The show will, of course, be back next week. Goodbye. Hey, we should talk Linux. It's the operating system that runs the internet, but your game consoles, cell phones, and maybe even the machine on your desk. But you already knew all that. What you may not know is that TwitNow has a show dedicated to it, the Untitled Linux Show. Whether you're a Linux pro, a burgeoning sysadmin, or just curious what the big deal is, you should join us on the Club Twit Discord every Saturday afternoon for news, analysis, and tips to sharpen your Linux skills. And then make sure you subscribe to the Club Twit exclusive Untitled Linux Show. Wait, you're not a Club Twit member yet? Well, go to twit.tv slash Club Twit and sign up. Hope to see you there.